When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken and Merry Christmas. I know we just celebrated it. In fact, I just took my tree down this morning, but today we are covering Matthew 2 and Luke 2, the most well-known Christmas story in all history, as it recounts the birth of Jesus from two different perspectives, from Matthew's as well as from Luke's. And as we, as we studied last week and began to understand the differences between these gospel writers, next week we'll get to know John and his approach, and then the week after we'll get to know Mark and his approach. But last week, as we spent time in Matthew 1 and Luke 1, I hope you got a sense of who these gospel writers are, what their who their audience is, what their approach is, what their aim, how they portray the Savior. Uh, last week's lesson, that first half especially, was really important for all that we're going to be seeing later on in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I also wanted to say one thing before we dive in. Uh, many of you have reached out to me, thank you for doing that, asking for... Uh, how do I access that chart? <laughs> you know me, I like my charts. Uh, the one that shows how to read all four standard works a little bit every day and complete the entire standard works in a single year. Uh, we're only, a, at least as of this filming, we're only a few days into January. And so you're not that far behind. Uh, and so if you wanted to make 2023 your year of deep immersion in all of, all of Scripture, uh, then January 1st to begin Genesis 1, Matthew 1, 1 Nephi 1, Doctrine and Covenants 1, and, Ma and Moses 1, uh, and then just plow through until on December 31st you will finish Malachi and the book of Revelation and Moroni and the second official declaration and the articles of faith. It's a glorious year. You don't have much time to stop and smell the roses. Uh, and so maybe that maybe this year isn't your year to do that. Uh, I definitely don't suggest you do it very often uh, because to me, this, the stop and smell the roses approach is much more beneficial. But to get a big picture, uh, to, to finish a bo the books if you've never done so, and to start seeing some of the cross connections between books of scripture, uh, I don't know a better way to do it. And uh, the several years, I don't know, four or five years that I've done it, uh, were really op eye-opening and soul-expanding for me. Uh, if you want that chart, go back to the first video of the year. Uh, it's the one on the introduction to the New Testament. And in the show notes, uh, is that what they call them? Uh, the video description, that's it. Uh, I don't have show notes because I don't have anybody to help. But the, in the video description on YouTube, if you're listening to this podcast version or watching this somewhere else, just go to the YouTube version. And in the video description down below, there is a link so you can get that, uh, that chart for all the standard works yourself. So. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. Uh, a late gift. Yeah, but again, speaking of Christmas, Matthew 2 and Luke 2 are such masterpieces. And so often when we tell the Christmas story or when we act it out with our children dressed in bathrobes and, and dish towels on their head and ties, uh, tie, neckties tying it, tying it all down, uh, that, that seems to be the normal uh, wardrobe for a, a good New Testament shepherd. Uh, the challenge is we tend to harmonize. Uh, we talked last week about the benefits and the 
or the advantages and the disadvantages of harmonizing these stories. We harmonize it to make it one big happy family there in the stable with shepherds and wise men all looking on simultaneously. And that's not what happened. Uh, at least not according to Matthew and Luke. Their stories are very different because they are aiming at, diff at two different audiences and trying to accomplish two similar but different things. And so we're going to see those details ourselves. But my, my hope as we get into these stories, because they're so well known, because we just studied them a few weeks ago or read them under the lights of the Christmas tree before, before opening presents on Christmas morning, I hope that we can slow it down and, and savor every sentence. I hope more than anything that the Holy Ghost will breathe new life into these beautiful old stories. I remember the first year I taught New Testament in seminary and I, well, we had Christmas in August because uh, the school year was beginning and we were starting the New Testament and I wanted it to me be meaningful to, for my students. And so I, I brought in Christmas lights uh, for, for that day and put a little sign on the classroom door saying, please be reverent. Uh, no, it said, welcome to Bethlehem. Please be quiet because a baby is sleeping. And it was sweet to see these wonderful teenagers more quietly than usual shuffle into the room where the lights were dimmed and these Christmas lights were aglow with some Christmas music playing in the background and to get a feel for Christmas in August. Here we are now, Christmas in January. But any time of year, is worth celebrating the birth of Jesus, the coming of Christ. And this, the reverence with which they approached the texts made all the difference. So I invite you to be reverent, to open your heart and soul, and allow the spirit of Christmas to be breathed into you as well. Though I do want to take back one thing I said on that sign. And it's the idea that we wouldn't want to be too loud or we'd wake the baby. So that idea of a baby's sleeping. You see, I was a young father and we had one child and my wife would often tell me, I mean, she'd be, she'd be mothering all morning long, all day. And by the time she got home, by the time I got home from, from teaching, if the baby was asleep, my wife wanted to keep things that way. So she was always like, shh, 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 shh. I finally got her down. Please don't wake her up. And sometimes I would comply with my wife's wishes. I would always pretend to, uh, but you see, I learned something as a young father that sleeping babies are so much easier to care for. They make no demands of you. And my wife, who had had the baby making demands of her all day long, was ready for a break. But for me, I, I missed my little girl and I wanted to play with her. And as easy as sleeping babies are and as cute as they are, they're just not that much fun. You can't do anything with them. And so sometimes I would have to accidentally be a little loud. And then when the baby just happened to wake up, then it was, all bets were off. I could swoop in and bring her up out of the crib and have a blast with her. And, and I realize now that if we did the same with the baby Jesus and let him sleep through Christmas, or through the rest of our New Testament study, through our lives of so-called discipleship, if we let the baby sleep. Remember the Christmas song, No Crying He Makes? No, cry, no crying out and making demands on our time or our attention. No real demands of discipleship. And so often, tragically, 
we allow Jesus to sleep through our lives or we end up sleeping through them, spiritually speaking, ourselves. And it sure is easier that way. Some people worry, if I gain a true testimony, if I am truly born again in a newness of life in Christ, then he's going to make demands of me. He's going to ask me to repent of my sins, even my favorite ones. He's going to take up all my time or a bigger portion of it than I'm used to giving him. I can't do that. Let's just let sleeping babes lie. But again, you are missing out of the joy of having this Christ child in your life. Yes, he will make demands, but he also makes promises and keeps them. He is the word of God and God keeps his word. We'll see that next week in John chapter 1. And so my challenge to us all, as we begin studying this Christmas story anew, is to wake the baby. Now, Matthew and Luke, like we saw last week, two different writers, two different styles, two different uh, audiences and approaches. Let me give you a chart, uh, since we're in the mood for charts today, and lay out side by side Matthew and Luke. Because yes, they're two of the three synoptics. Uh, Mark fits in there as well. Matthew and Luke, as we talked last week, most likely based their narrative on Mark's storyline and then included as many other stories as they could, uh, teachings, sayings, and so forth. But to put, Mark, excuse me, put Matthew and Luke side by side and see just how different they are, notice this. Matthew is, writing, is a Jew writing to Jews. Luke is a Gentile writing to Gentiles. Therefore, Matthew tends to look back in time studying the Old Testament, finding the fulfillment of its prophecies in the coming of Christ. And so Matthew's version is, is focused on fulfillment, whereas Luke is looking more towards anticipation. I mean, yeah, obviously he sees the back, the back story as well, but to look forward, that's why Luke is just the prequel to the book of Acts, where the Gentile story fully comes into play. And so to see in the, again, if you, if you study the book of Luke with an eye to Acts coming up, then this really is an anticipatory gospel, as opposed to the fulfillment gospel of Matthew. Matthew, with his Jewish audience, is more, it deals more with exclusivity, whereas Luke, with his Gentile audience, deals more with inclusivity. We talked about this last time. There's more uh, minorities, there's more outsiders, there's more of the poor in the book of Luke than any other gospel. Another difference is Matthew is more male and Luke is more female as far as their cast of characters and so on. You'll meet more of the sister saints who follow Jesus in the book of Luke than any other gospel. Uh, Matthew tends to aim high and Luke tends to aim low as far as who he's including in scripture. And so like we saw last week in Matthew chapter 1, let's start with the genealogy of Jesus and it's the reign of the, of the, of the kings. This is the Davidic dynasty, and so there's, there's the lofty. Whereas Luke, we're going to deal with, again, the poor, the, the needy, the, the lower class within society. Along those same lines, Matthew will focus more on the rich, and Luke more on the poor. Matthew deals with the learned, and Luke will include more of the simple. And with all of that in mind, no wonder when we're looking at the background of Jesus as well as the birth of Jesus, very different approaches. Like we saw last week, Matthew's version focused on Joseph and Luke's version focused on Mary. And as we'll see today, 
the Matthew account of the nativity stars the wise men, whereas Luke's account of the nativity, shepherds take center stage. Uh, to me, it's a beautiful thing, depending on who you are and, and what your path to Jesus will look like. Will Matthew resonate more with you or will Luke? And again, like I said last week, thankfully we don't have to choose. We can enjoy them all. But to try to play fair, since last week we started with Matthew and then went to Luke, let's reverse order. And today, let's begin with Luke 2. Uh, we're going to get up through Jesus, oh, about 40 days old today, or in, in Luke 2. Then we'll jump back to Matthew 2 to meet the wise men. And we'll see chronologically why that's important. Chrono if we're following strict timeline, Luke 2 should come before Matthew 2. But we have to separate Luke 2 in the middle, cut it in half, do the first half of Luke 2, then jump back to Matthew 2, and then go return to the second half of Luke 2. That's the chronology. And that's what we'll do today. By the time we're done, we will have rapidly covered 30 years. Uh, well, actually, <laughs> just the birth uh, a few moments early on. Fast forward, uh, Jesus at age 12, and then fast forward, next week he'll be 30, beginning his ministry. Okay, so this is all we get for the childhood and growing up years of Jesus of Nazareth. So Luke chapter 2, let's begin, obviously, with verse 1. So famous. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. If you recall last week, I mentioned that Luke is not only a polished writer of Greek, he's also a very observant and careful historian. And so he will not just tell the Jewish story, but he'll try to connect it out with, to Gentile history as well. And again, as a Gentile, go figure. And so this is not just a story about baby Jesus. Let's put situate it in, in the big picture, and let's mention Caesar Augustus and Cyrenius, governor of Syria. Okay, And all the world, and that's a little a bit of hubris on the part of the Roman Empire, but as far as their subjects were concerned, yeah, the Romans conquered the whole world. The world as they knew it. So the whole world, all the world should be taxed. Taxed is probably not the, the best translation there. The English Standard Version uses the word registered instead, and that's probably more uh, correct historically as far as what is taking place. Uh, to go send people to some distant part of, the, of their land to go pay taxes, uh, I'm lucky to make it to the, to the mailbox on April 15th. But to be registered, to be, to be written down, in some ways what Caesar Augustus is trying to do is figure out all of the, the who's and what's and where's of his empire. Where are my subjects? Where are they from? Are we keeping proper track of all of them? And so go back to where you are, your ancestral homeland and, and stake a claim in your identity in where you come from. And then we'll put that on the records of the Roman Empire. Um, we, when, my, when we were kids, I was born in California, my little brother was born in California, and then uh, two, the three younger siblings were all born in Texas. And my oldest sister was born in Provo, Utah. And it seemed like so, so common at the time because mom and dad were BYU students and, and, and my older sister was a BYU baby. And so if there's two states that seem to have more pride than the rest, it's California and Texas and guilty on both parts. And so the rest of us were very proud that we were registered elsewhere. And my poor sister registered in Provo, like every other BYU baby. 
well, fast forward, and my wife and I had a BYU baby, and then two Orem babies, and a Sandy baby, and, uh, and it was only number five that was registered elsewhere, out in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah, but to think about what Joseph and Mary are doing then, in this sense of going back to Bethlehem to be registered. Why is that so important? Well, verse 3 through 5, all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Again, a sense of identity here and lineage and heritage, inheritance. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. As we saw last week in Matthew chapter 1, Davidic dynasty comes all the way down to this no-name artisan, we traditionally know him as a carpenter, though the Greek word most likely means stonemason. Somebody good with his hands, somebody that can build things. He leaves Nazareth. He comes down to Bethlehem because that's where his family is from. To be taxed, that is registered, with Mary, his espoused wife. Nothing has been consummated yet. That is not official. Being great with child. Now again, location, location, location is key here. And we'll see more of the reasons why in a moment, but just to think about David. If, if Matthew is trying to connect Jesus to David historically in the genealogy, Luke here is connecting Jesus to David geographically to help people see that he was born right where he needed to be, to be of the house and lineage of David himself, king of the Jews, okay? Greatest king that the Jews had ever had, up to Jesus's point. We've mentioned already, that Beit means house, Lechem means bread, and so Bethlehem means house of bread. What better place for the bread of life to be born? If it's the house of, or the, the hometown of David, and if you recall, before he became famous as a king, and before he became famous as a warrior against Goliath, as you know, he was most well known as a shepherd, and a very, very good one. So again, what better place for the Lamb of God to come than to the home of the Good Shepherd himself? This Lamb would grow to become an even better shepherd than David ever could be. And even to this day, if you were to go to Bethlehem, it's so sad that the Prince of Peace was born in a place that is now home to not much peace at all. But you can still see shepherds there in shepherd's fields outside Bethlehem to this day. One of my favorite Christmases in non-December was in early spring of 1997, when as a young college student, I found myself singing Christmas carols in shepherd's fields just outside Bethlehem. Now, verse 6 and 7 is really where this story oh, brings so many Christmas memories. When I was a young father and my wife a young mother, the kids were small enough that they, they wanted to dress up. And so our oldest was Mary and our second was Joseph and whatever new baby there was, sometimes it was a doll, but sometimes it was a new baby brother or sister, uh, became the baby Jesus. And then we, they'd quick and change clothing and become shepherds in, in one scene and wise men in, in the next. It eventually got so chaotic trying to, you know, to organize the nativity play that one Christmas I finally said, uh, th this is actually getting in the way <laughs> of our Christmas experience. So can we try something different this year? And we put away the dish towels and the neckties and the bathrobes and turned off every light in the house, including the Christmas tree twinklers, and, and lit a single candle. 
and opened up Luke 2, and then Matthew 2, and then 3 Nephi 1, and by the light of a single candle, read about the coming of the light of the world. And while it was hard for my kids to make it through a nativity play, <laughs> feeling rambunctious, they were so silent, so quiet, so reverent, just hearing these words uttered under the influence of the Holy Ghost. They could get, barely get through the play. I could barely get through the reading as I just was choked up by the power and the spirit of these magnificent words. That has since become our Christmas tradition. My kids joke that as I get older and my eyesight gets worse, I have to get bigger scriptures or I have to light more than one candle. Uh, sadly, we're getting to the point where I have to read it off my phone, which is oh, uh, horrible compared to, but we still have the candle lit. But there is something about sensing that there we are in that little town of Bethlehem. And by mere candlelight, without any Christmas tree lights or, or glare off of Christmas presents, just the simplicity of these magnificent words that we know so well. Verse 6 and 7. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. How many times have we read that to our children, to our grandchildren, and rejoiced in the reality? Said so simply. <laughs> There's no fanfare there yet. As Mary simply brings forth her firstborn son. If you look at the Joseph Smith translation of that passage, by the way, it adds an interesting wrinkle. Instead of it simply saying that there was no room for them in the inn, and that would have been some kind of caravansary, as they, as they call it, uh, as the people are coming and going through. I mean, Bethlehem is so close to Jerusalem. You're almost there. Well, just another five or six miles, and you'll make it. But as people, pilgrims coming to the Jewish feasts three times a year, for example, or Arab traders, or Roman legions, or you name it through all of the centuries. There would be places for people to stay. This is not a Motel 6. This is not the Hyatt. This is, I should have said Marriott. That's a Latter-day Saint company. Uh, it, it is, this is, people would live there, but there's often this opening in the middle where people could leave their animals and then have stalls or different rooms that people could stay in all, all around it. Uh, this is not a matter of Joseph simply knocking on one door and, and sadly being told that there's no vacancy. No husband with a pregnant wife would give up so quickly or so, or so easily. So one addition to the last word is a single letter. In the JST, it changes from in to ins, which seems more appropriate, that Joseph is not going to give up. But there's more to it. The JST of that passage says, because there was none to give room for them in the inns. Now, again, if, if all the world is going to be registered, and I wonder how many people are in Bethlehem that may not be literally related to King David, but everybody wants a piece of that action. Everybody wants to connect to that mighty king. Is Bethlehem so overrun with people? that there is no space for Joseph, or worse yet, for Mary. 
or worse yet, for this baby Jesus. Now there's a historical possibility here that I find fascinating. Now, we don't know enough of the details for proof one way or another, but an incredibly wise and well-researched colleague of mine, Jeff Chadwick, has brought up the possibility that perhaps this this idea of Joseph and Mary in a stable because there was no room in this caravansary, in this inn, and so they just found whatever they could find. Uh, historically, that might not be as accurate as tradition would have us believe. Another possibility is Mary and Joseph coming down to Bethlehem far in advance of the birth. Uh, they could have been there for quite some time. Now, if you notice the first phrase in verse 6, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. I mean, that doesn't sound like I mean, I remember one, I think it was child number three, uh, speeding to the, to the hospital as quickly as we could. Uh, actually, number two was that way. Sorry, sorry, Maddie, it was Jacob. Uh, and to just get there because, I mean, he was lucky to survive the, the experience, okay? So emergency, we got to go and break all the, all the traffic rules and the speed limits on the way. Uh, that's kind of what we picture, that Mary is, is great with child, we saw that already, but ready to burst. And so it's of, time is of the essence. We have to get into anything we can find. Well, uh, as Dr. Chadwick has suggested, if Joseph is a, a tecton, if he is a, an artisan, if he's a stonemason particularly, and Jesus does use a whole lot more stone metaphors than woodworking metaphors uh, in his later ministry, so he's a builder, uh, and if Joseph was a builder, picture him, we're going to move to Bethlehem, especially if we need to be registered there. It's not so much that I need to be registered. I'm of the house and lineage of David. Matthew knows it. Luke knows it. Everybody's going to know it. But the world needs to know that Jesus is of the house and lineage of David as well. If Jesus can have Bethlehem on his birth certificate, if we live there and he grows up there and everyone refers to him as Jesus of Bethlehem, then that's going to fulfill prophecy. We're going to see in just a moment what prophecy it's fulfilling. But to, to understand what Joseph and Mary may be feeling here, we have to, we're going to help God keep his word. And we're going to let the world know that the most famous Bethlehemite of all time is finally here. The Messiah, the son of David, the king of the Jews. And so did they come early enough? And is Joseph building themselves a home? Uh, the, the, there's no mention of stable in the scriptures. And even to this day, it's more of a cave where it is believed that Jesus came into the world. And so to go to the church of the nativity in Bethlehem, uh, it's hard to get a sense that it's a cave until you actually get to the spot because it's underneath this magnificent chapel. But is that them running into some stable where the animals are kept? Or is that animals kept outside so they can graze? Uh, it's not that cold. I mean, it can get cold. I, it snowed a couple times when I was in Jerusalem. But we were out in shepherd's fields in the, in the early, early, early spring. Uh, and and it, wasn't, it wasn't bad at all. Uh, we'll see the shepherds out there in the fields in just a moment. So is our Joseph and Mary staying in a cave, kind of a grotto themselves, while Joseph is building the home? That's a possibility. We don't know for sure. But no room in the inn, no one there to let them into these other places where Mary would be better cared for. 
the home is not yet done if that's what Joseph is building. Uh, and so the sense of we, there's no room for us to go anywhere else but where we already happen to be. So I, it looks like we're going to have this baby right here, honey. And she does. But if I can say one last thing about this idea of no room, that's tragic. And unfortunately, it describes many of us. If you are doing the nativity play, people will probably fight over the roles of Mary and Joseph. No one wants to be the innkeeper. And yet there we are. So often when Jesus wants to come to us in one way or another saying, there's just no room. Again, back to the JST of this, there was none to give room for them. I mean, honestly, if it was me, if it was you, what, what, what would your better solutions be? Here's one. Give up your own room. Uh, I'll sleep out in the, in the grotto. I'll sleep in the cave. You come right in here in my own bed. And are we willing to give up some of our favorite pastimes or limit the time that we spend in those lesser hobbies to be able to make a little bit more room for Jesus in our lives? I know I'm speaking to the choir. The fact you would sit through such long lessons with me all this time. Uh, suggests that you are saying no to a lot of other things and giving up parts of yourself to be able to spend this much time in Scripture. And time is, is something that feels like it belongs to us. It's my own room. Well, we can give some up. Another possibility, if I were an innkeeper, I'd kick somebody else out. Uh, and I think so often that is something that's a little easier for us to do, hopefully, to kick out, kick out some transgression or to kick out even a mere diversion so that we have a little more space in our day to give to Christ. I would say there's even a better option, and that's simply to have a standing reservation in Jesus' name and refusing, no matter what, to sell out that space for something else. When I taught seminary, I would often talk to my seminary students, these wonderful teenagers, and challenge them to carve out enough time to do scripture study every day. I still do that with my BYU students. And to make the standing invitation and a reservation that I'll never give to anyone else. And no matter what comes up in my life, I will always have enough room in my inn for Jesus to come. The challenge is, we don't know when he's coming. And since he has agency, just like we do, he gets to choose whether or not he'll come and when he'll end up coming. If this innkeeper had known the day, I'm sure he would have kept the, the room available. We just don't know. As we meet Simeon and Anna later on in today's lesson, I think the innkeeper could have learned something from their examples. And since I don't know just when Jesus will come, I want to be ever ready for him whenever he chooses to. Now in verse 8, let's meet Luke's stars. And those are the shepherds. The lowly, the poor, the simple, the humble. The outsiders being welcomed in first. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Not much had changed in the hundreds of years since a young David 
was a shepherd out there. Same fields. Is it, was it a night like this when a lion or a bear came to devour one little lamb in the flock? And yet this good shepherd courageously took on the lion and the bear to save, to save a lamb that most of us would have thought was beyond saving? Well, these shepherds, still there to this day, are out abiding in the field. And who better to identify the Lamb of God than people who spent their lives doing just that? Now, it's interesting. Like I said, Bethlehem is so close to Jerusalem. Five or six miles is all. And if you think about the number of lambs that would be required for, to offici- for those who are officiating at the temple in Jerusalem, there's a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice every day. During Passover, uh, there is, every family needs to sacrifice a lamb. So there is, there is going to be a massive well, supply and demand challenge, right? Because demand will be enormous, especially at Passover time, which means supply is going to have to be very great as well. Think about Jesus. If he's born in spring, if, the, if this is Passover season, If his life is going to come full circle and die at Passover time, having been born around Passover time, to think about lambs without blemish, which means shepherds are going to have to take care of their flock as well as they possibly can. For the daily sacrifice, it's not just a lamb without blemish. It has to be the firstling of the flock because the firstling of the flock is the one that belongs to God. In the book of Exodus, several times, it talks about God. Because the firstborn was supposed to die in in Egypt, and only because of the Passover, because of the blood of this lamb, can the firstborn be, be spared. And since I spared your firstborn, your firstborn belongs to me. That's the, the, the symbolism here. And so instead of taking that firstborn, I mean, there, we, all the stuff we studied last year, and I'll take the Levites instead, they'll count as the firstborn. Beautiful symbolism there as well as far as priesthood and service to others. But when you think of the lamb, the lamb has to represent that, that offering that I didn't accept. I didn't take from you, your firstborn child. I'll take your firstborn lamb instead. Now think about that as far as shepherds in Bethlehem. Could these have been temple flocks? Could these have been the flocks and herds that would have been used by the priests to represent the the Savior of the world? Every whit of every sacrifice pointing toward that great and last sacrifice of the Son of God, as Amulek teaches us. Now, if... You see, when I was a kid and I would read this or hear my parents read it every Christmas, I remember thinking... Poor shepherds, do they ever get to actually sleep? They're out abiding in the field. That's rough. But second, keeping watch over their flock by night. Wow. Now, is that just for the the occasional lion and bear? Is it for the wolves that are out there ready to prey upon the sheep? Most likely. Uh, Any damage done, even if you save them, there's going to be a blemish when all is said and done. But if you're looking for the firstling of the flock, I'm not a a shepherd. I don't know how it works, but if sheep are anything like humans, babies always seem to come at the least convenient moments, right? Uh, Middle of the night, and they they keep you up ever since, (laughs) forever after. But think of a shepherd, I have to be able to identify the firstling of the flock. 
And so I'm going to abide in the field. I'm going to keep watch over them by night. So I can spot the, the you that is lambing and be able to recognize and then identify this lamb, as opposed to all the others, is one that is truly a lamb for God. Can you see why in this rich Christmas symbolism, it would be shepherds that first come to identify the baby Jesus and to recognize that the Lamb of God, his firstborn son, has finally come into the world. It's such a powerful symbol here. Well, it's not just the shepherds that are up that night. In verse 9 and 10, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. How could they not be? This is so outside the norm. Nothing like this had ever happened to them. What do we do? What, what, what does this mean? And the angel said unto them, Fear not, which is what the angel said to Mary, which is what the angel said to Joseph, which is what the angel says to all of us, to Zechariah, you name it. No fear. The Spirit comes and banishes fear, replacing it with faith. So fear not, you good shepherds, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Last week we talked about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the Gospels comes from the Greek word euangelion, or Latin evangelium. That's evangel, that's evangelize, that's evangelist. And when these angels say that there is good tidings, guess what root word there is? There's the evangelium. We are bringing the gospel, and it is a gospel of great joy. I love what Sherry Dew has said, that so often when people bear their testimony, they make it sound so hard. Like, like the, living the gospel is like being condemned to, to hard labor and life on the chain gang. And as Sister Dew has mentioned, we can cheer up a bit about this. This is the good news after all. It's great joy. And perhaps if we're not feeling it, we're missing something. Perhaps we haven't read all the news. Perhaps we're only focusing on bad news and, what, and, and, what, and life is full of bad news. The gospel is meant to give us the good news to make sense of the bad that we have to endure. And remember, it's for all people. If there's one thing we know from the New Testament about shepherds, it's that they care about every single one of their sheep. They'll leave the 90 and 9 and go after the one lost one. And so to give this word to shepherds, confident that they will then make sure the news, the good news of great joy, will get to every lamb, wherever they might be. And so they do. Part of this great news, verse 11 and 12, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Can you hear Handel's Messiah playing in the background? For unto us a child is born. Think about that similar language. Unto us a child is born. Here the angels say, unto you is born this day. Location, city of David, and then identity. And three titles are given. A Savior, which is Christ, the Lord. So Savior... There we get salvation. And what was Jesus' name? Salvation. So you will, there you will find in the city of David a Savior. You will find Jesus. 
which is Christ. Christ is the word for Messiah, anointed one. You will find Jesus, the Christ. You will find Savior, which is Messiah, Christ, the Lord. And the interesting thing there, in the Old Testament, so often when you see the word Lord in all capitals, that is taking the place of what they call the tetragrammaton, fun word, which simply means four letters. And it's the Y-H-W-H that we often use to say Yahweh. It's where Jehovah comes from uh, as it's become anglicized. But though that four, those four letters are the, word, the letters that no practicing Jew will ever utter because that is the name of God. When Moses asks the Lord, what is your name? How do I introduce you to your people? And Jehovah says, I am that I am. Just that to be verb, I exist. And I call everything else into existence. I just am. And I, and I will be. That's Lord. And what's interesting here, it's not in all capitals because they don't do that in the New Testament. But this Lord, the Greek word for it is the same Greek word that the Septuagint the Greek version of the Old Testament, uses every time the tetragrammaton appears. So think of it in these terms, as this angel begins to spread the good news. Who will you find in Bethlehem, the city of David? You will find a Savior, salvation, Jesus himself. You will find the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you will find the Great I am. You will find the Lord of hosts. You will find the God of Sinai. The, the God of the Old Testament, the creator of the cosmos. He's come. He's condescended to our level. To the level of a lowly shepherd. So go and find him there. And this shall be a sign unto you, the angel tells them. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Manger is the French word to eat. And so a manger is a feeding trough. It may not have been food. It could have been water. Uh, and to think of either way, the bread of life or the living water will be found there. Go to Bethlehem and find, yeah, that's how you'll recognize this Christ, this Savior, this Lord. And to be found in swaddling clothes, to swaddle a baby, suggests that this baby is well cared for by parents that love this child. If you recall an obscure passage last year in the book of Ezekiel, when the Lord is trying to wake up Israel and remind them of all that God has done for them and that he'll continue to do even as they're banished off in Babylon, he uses the analogy of Israel as an infant as a newborn, but one that no one cared for, that had been cast off, and only the God of Israel had pity upon that, upon that child, little foundling, okay, that otherwise would have perished in the wilderness. Here's the verse, it's Ezekiel 16, verse 4. As for thy nativity, interesting word to think of around Christmas time, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut. You didn't even have anyone there to cut the umbilical cord. That's shocking. No dad to do that work. Where's mom? She's obviously there. But she didn't even cut the umbilical cord. 
No, the navel was not cut. Neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Nobody cleansed you. Nobody cleaned you up after birth. Thou wast not salted at all. And salting was also used for cleanliness. It's also a sign of the covenant. And then the last phrase, nor swaddled at all. Oh, that's a tragic way to begin life. Parent, they talk about absentee parents. No one to cut the cord, no one to wash you with water, no one to swaddle you in swaddling clothes. And yet that's not the case for Jesus. This, in fact, more than even just what it's saying about the, the loving care of Mary and Joseph, there's, I think, a deeper symbol, symbol here. Because what, what, what are swaddling clothes for? I remember as a, a young father learning how to swaddle my children and to do it really tight and really well. And I always wondered, why, why does swaddle? I mean, a baby that's just crying and won't fall asleep, and then you swaddle them well, and all of a sudden they're out? It's like, this, this is a game changer. Now I can get some sleep. And the reality of it all that I didn't understand at the time was for the last nine months, this baby has been swaddled in the womb. Baby, newborns aren't claustrophobic. They're used to it. Okay, So to have it pressed in. In fact, it's the opposite that they're concerned about. I don't know what the, uh, the opposite of claustrophobia is. But when you have so much space and your arms are flailing because you're used to having them so pressed in to be in the fetal position because it's so tight and packed in the womb. Now think about that. To then come out of the womb and to be so free it's like Isaiah, blind men groping for the wall. Please give me a limit. Give me a line that I can't cross. Please lessen my free range so that I know where I need to be. And it's just interesting that to think of a newborn that needs that safety and security of the womb now that they're outside of it. And it makes me wonder about the spirit being free. Sometimes it's symbolized as a bird because it can fly anywhere. Not to be earthbound, not to be so tightly swaddled. But to think of Jesus coming into the world. We'll see this beautifully taught next week in John chapter 1. The Word is made flesh. This, the baby is swaddled. The Spirit enters a mortal tabernacle. Our injured flesh is wrapped around him, keeping him in within that body. With all its strengths and all its weaknesses, that's what mortality does to us. But I do think there's something magnificent about the symbolism of, of this. You will find the Lamb of God. You will find, you shepherds, the firstling of the flock. But unlike the, the thought of a a spiritual being that somehow fills the cosmos. No, the Word will be made flesh, and God's own Son will come and be swaddled in a body of flesh and blood. You will see God before you in infant form. The God of Israel, Jehovah himself. I think it adds even deeper meaning to the crucifixion when Jesus' body the spirit now free of it for a time is wrapped in burial clothing. And the body of Jesus is swaddled one last time, even though the body itself 
could no longer hold him. If you turn to verse 13 and 14, that, so far it's just the one angel with the shepherds. He began giving this good news, but it's amazing how quickly news can spread. So sure enough, verse 13 and 14, suddenly, that's how fast, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. How suddenly this one solitary messenger is now joined by a cloud of witnesses that seems to be billowing outward and upward in all directions. I hope that we were included within that multitude of the heavenly host. Where else would we have been? That's another Christmas tradition in the Halverson home. One of my mother's best friends from my childhood wrote a magnificent song called, Was I There? And to, to ponder that, to pray for a thin veil so that we can almost remember our presence on that first Christmas night. And what were we saying then? Glory to God in the highest. Are we still saying that? On earth, peace. Are we still proclaiming peace? Goodwill toward men. Are we offering and extending that in all directions? The cloud of witnesses is continuing to expand. We just have to remember what cloud we were once a part of. In verse 15 and 16, it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven. Now the real test is going to begin. You were surrounded by the Spirit in that moment. You absolutely knew. You rejoiced right alongside the angels of heaven themselves. But what will you do when they leave? As the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go, even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which is come to pass. How's that for confidence? Not, I don't know, maybe we should, let's go check it out. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. No, it is come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. Who else has a host of angels to send his messengers? And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph, and best of all, the babe lying in a manger. Do we believe what heaven has manifest to us? What a tragedy if it would have said, and the shepherds said one to another, well, that was weird. Or the shepherds said one to another, oh, that's just confirmation bias. Or if the shepherds had said one to another, uh, the day of miracles has ceased, and so what we just saw, we didn't really see. That was active imagination. That was a dream. We have so many ways. That was psychology. That was a dopamine dump into the brain. That's all it was. And... It was, it was heightened emotionalism. And that's the only reason that you think you believe these things. No. No, the shepherds didn't say any of those things. They said, let's go, because it's happened. How can we doubt what we know? Remember last week when we talked about Zacharias in the temple and wrestling with doubt? There is no doubt among these shepherds. Let's go. And they came with haste. Can we come running whenever we know that Jesus might be somewhere? Wait, if he's going he's to be at church this Sunday? I'm rushing. 
We're going to be able to hear his voice through his servant's voice. It is the same at general conference. I'm coming with haste. I can feel the voice of God as I study scripture through his spirit. Then I'm hastening to the word of God every chance that I get. Thank you for your noble example, you incredible shepherds. And the example doesn't end there. Verse 17 and 18. When they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. You see the order? The shepherds see and then the shepherds share. And on the people's part, first they hear and then they wonder. And not wonder like, huh, I wonder what that's all about. Wonder as in awe and wonder and marveling about these things. A marvelous work and a wonder, that's what they just heard about. And they're ready to go join the cloud of witnesses and spread the word as well. This is how good news is shared. Nobody has to push you to open your mouth. You can't keep it shut. The best advertising campaigns require no advertising. It's just word of mouth. As people come to rejoice in something that has changed them, and they're not told that, I, mean, I, need, to go, I need to go share this. It's, I can't help it. This is fire in the bones like Jeremiah talked about. I've got to let it burn. And there's a forest fire of faith coming out of this little, little spot in Bethlehem. In some way, it's Jesus' echo of what we saw last week in John the Baptist's birth. Remember this verse in Luke chapter 1, verse 65? All these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. Sayings about John the Baptist and his miraculous birth noised abroad. Now similar, six months later. And not another set of sayings being noised abroad. Again, what's happening 30 years from now as people are doing the math and remembering the old stories reflecting upon those things, could it be? Is this little John, now John the Baptist? Is this the babe of Bethlehem, now Jesus of Nazareth? Is, is Jesus of Nazareth really Jesus of Bethlehem? Is this what the shepherds were talking about all the time ago? It's amazing with the news, the good news as it's beginning to spread. Meanwhile, however, verse 19, come back to the stable, come back to the cave, come back to wherever this is, Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. That is such a beautiful moment. Take time to be holy. Treasure up continually the words of life. Be still and know that I am God. To this day, to, to a bunch of people, at Latter-day Saints, we work a lot. This is my work and my glory. And we glory in God's work. And so we're engaged in it constantly. But I don't think it is coincidental that the holiest place within the gospel, within the church, is also the quietest and most contemplative. It's the celestial room of the temple. And by the time you get there, the work is done. It's time for worship. It's time to just sit and feel and be. It's time to ponder and pray. Or as, as this beautiful verse says, it's time to keep some things. So you have something to ponder in your heart. So that's, that's shelf one in the metaphor of the three shelves of Revelation past and Revelation present, preparing us for Revelation yet to come. And if we have things on our first shelf, spiritual experiences that we have kept there, 
then we have things to ponder, which will help initiate more and more revelation on that middle shelf, the second one, preparing us for God to bring down more from shelf three for us to ponder and think upon. I love Mary for this. She is treasuring up her spiritual experiences. And can you imagine the bedtime stories she would have told little Jesus? When our kids were little, in fact, I don't think they'll ever grow out of it. To hear stories from their childhood, at least the non-embarrassing ones, to, to hear about their birth and imagine Jesus, little Jesus, mother, will you tell me again about the angels? Will you tell me again about the shepherds? I just, I want to hear that story. And Mary could tell him because she treasured it in, his, in her heart. Well, verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. So it's not just Mary holding on to these things. The shepherds were too. I bet they, for the rest of their lives, every chance they had, they reviewed the good news and told the stories all over again. But our story is not yet done. Sadly, that's usually where the Christmas play ends. Don't let it. Okay, keep reading. In verse 21, when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Joseph knew that, Matthew 1. Mary knew that, Luke 1. And now we know it. The world knows it. Salvation has come into the world. And so he's called, little Yeshua, salvation himself. And to be circumcised on the eighth day, eighth day that's Genesis 17, the token of the covenant, that Jesus is taking this covenant upon himself. Remember when we studied Hellenization and the challenge that Greece culture and Greek philosophy, Greek culture and Greek philosophy made upon the, the house of Israel? And everybody wants to fit in with their Greek Gentile neighbors? Not Jesus, not Mary and Joseph. Remember we talked about epispasm and this strange surgical operation that could basically reverse circumcision? So I could go to a local Gentile gymnasium and, and fit in and nobody has to know that I'm a child of the covenant because I'm not showing its token? Jesus didn't care to fit in. He wanted to stand out, and so he did. And so he bore the token of the covenant. And he receives it as the law required on the eighth day. The beautiful thing about eight as a symbol is that it marks a new beginning. Because of the cycle of the week, if you in one week you go from day one to day seven, then what is the eighth day? It's a repeat of the first day. A new start, a new beginning. It's, we just had Christmas, eighth day, it's now Happy New Year. And for Jesus to celebrate this new year, by taking upon a covenant of new life in God, in the house of Israel, within the covenant, that's exactly what this baby Jesus is doing, thanks to his parents, that are helping him receive the covenant before Jesus can even fully understand what it is. We can do the same as parents and grandparents ourselves. Then verse 22 to 24, we often see this as the same day it wasn't, on the eighth day, there's the circumcision. And then 40 days after the birth is when you see this take place. Verse 22, when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished. See, after a woman gave birth, it was 40 days of purification. 
that she had to go through before she could then go through some ritual cleansing and return to full oh, ritual worthiness, covenant cleanliness within the law of Moses. If you think about the 40 days of wilderness or 40 years of wilderness wandering to purify and prepare Israel to enter the promised land and start keeping their covenants. If you think about the 40 days of cleansing the earth in the flood of Noah or 40 days of purification and preparation on Moses' part at Sinai or Elijah's part at Sinai. Just wait for two weeks and we'll see Jesus doing his own 40 days of preparation and purification before his ministry begins officially. But Mary is going through all of that to fulfill the law as required. But then after that time was complete, they brought Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. We mentioned that before because of the Passover, because of the death of the firstborn that was averted because of the sacrifice of the the first lamb instead. And so to be able to see something here in a similar vein, Jesus opened the womb for Mary. In fact, he did it in a miraculous way. The only begotten Son of God in the flesh. And for then that period of purification to take place so that then he could be presented, here's the irony, at his own house, to his own father. Your baby has come into the world. Now part of that ritual is then explained, or at least hinted at in the next verse, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now, Luke, had he been writing to a Jewish audience like Matthew will, could have said more about this. It's interesting that Matthew doesn't even talk about this, even though this is as Jewish as Jewish gets, uh, as Jesus and Mary are performing their parts, the circumcision and the purification and so on, presenting the first male to the Lord and everything else. But in a full Jewish understanding, they would have known that that turtle doves and pigeons were the last resort. That you were supposed to give something more valuable to take the place of this valuable son of God that has now become a son of man. You have a child. Give your very best to the Lord. And if you had the means, that's exactly what you'd do. But if you didn't have the means, then this was the option left you. In Leviticus chapter 5, verse 7, If he be not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring for his trespass, which he hath committed, two turtle doves or two young pigeons unto the Lord, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So as Mary was going to offer this this cleansing covenant, we can't afford a lamb. I'm sure that any one of the shepherds that came would have gladly given the best they had in their flock. But no, after 40 days, Mary and Joseph come to the temple almost empty-handed. To me, there's something very moving. Picturing a mother and father with so little that everything they have is this baby. It's all they ever wanted. But I don't have much to give to him or for him. I've had a few Christmases over the years. 
where I just wished I could have given my children more and couldn't. And to think of poor Joseph, poor in more ways than one, wishing that he could be a better provider for his family. But this is all we have. And that's okay. It's all that you need. And the Lord isn't asking for anything more. Don't feel bad for a moment that you can't bring a lamb. Because you are bringing one. In my precious lamb, the lamb of God himself. You're bringing full hearts. This is the widow's might that Jesus would notice 30 years later and recognize in this woman giving all that she was able and wondering, perhaps, how did my mother feel surrounded by other mothers that were bringing lambs when all I can afford to give is a pair of turtle doves? Well, thankfully, in God's mercy, not only does he accept it, that little offering, but he sanctifies it with symbolism that is just as meaningful as any lamb of God. The lamb being sacrificed to represent the lamb of God is so fitting. Where does the symbolism fit in with pigeons or turtle doves? Now, I mentioned this last year in one of the most obscure passages in the book of of Leviticus, as it's explaining, this is the priesthood handbook of instructions for ancient Israel, and this is the instruction manual of how to offer all these sacrifices. And this is what you do with the skin, this is what you do with the, the flesh, this is what you do with the, the kidneys or the call of the liver. Well, if you remember in Leviticus chapter 1, there's just a brief explanation of what to do if birds are the offering. And if you look at Leviticus 1 verse 16, it says that the priest shall pluck away the bird's crop with his feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east part by the place of the ashes. Okay. And years ago when I was teaching seminary, I looked at that and I had Amulek haunting me saying every single wit points to the great and last sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So figure that one out. And I thought, how? What does that have to do with, with the death of Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Feathers and ashes and the east part of the altar? I don't know but not one to give up easily. I felt the Spirit just encourage me, just keep reading, you'll figure it out. And sick sense of humor, I did keep reading and I did figure it out, but where was the clue? Buried on the very last page, not of the book of Leviticus, of the entire Old Testament. We talked about this briefly when we studied Malachi chapter 4 just a few weeks ago. But how's this for fulfillment? Malachi 4, verse 1 and 2, as it talks about the proud and all those that do wickedly. The day cometh shall burn them, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. And what does burning down trees leave? It leaves ashes. Okay, so now think ashes on the side of the altar. Next verse in Malachi 4. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise. Now, we think of son of righteousness as in the son of God. That's S-O-N. But here in Malachi, it's S-U-N. The son of righteousness, the light of the world is rising. And what direction does the sun rise from? The east. And what does this son of righteousness rise with? With healing in his wings. There's the bird. And then it just clicked to take all of those elements from Leviticus 1 verse 16. Feathers he'll arise with healing in his wings. Altar on the east 
part, that's where the sun of righteousness will arise. By the place of the ashes, oh, that's the, the smoking conflagration that's left behind when a forest of family trees ends up being a logging camp instead. Utterly wasted it is coming. But no, he's coming. He has come, a babe in Bethlehem. And so Mother Mary, as poor as you might be, bring the ultimate symbol. You're bringing a lamb already in your son, the Lamb of God. But bring birds so that the world can know that the Son of Righteousness is arising now with healing in his wings. This is a phoenix coming from the ashes. And to see the burned out hopes of the house of Israel as they've been suffering under the imperial thumb, civilization after civilization, empire after empire. Well, it's the day dawn is breaking and the light of the world has just come. He's come suddenly to his temple with healing in his wings. So magnificent. Now, we're not quite done with the Christmas play. Not even yet. We're 40 days in to Jesus's life. But here on this day of days, we all, we need to meet two more characters. And in the best nativity place, make sure you keep, you save a spot for a Simeon and an Anna. And in some ways they're so fitting as far as rounding out the cast of characters. We already saw male and female with Joseph and Mary. We saw the lowly with the shepherds. We're about to see the the lofty with the wise men when we go to, once we go to Matthew. But we'll also see young, that's most likely the shepherds, especially the ones that could out, be out abiding in the fields at night. But now you get the very old. And so to think of high and low and male and female and old and young and rich and poor, we'll even see rural Bethlehemites, the shepherds, and urban Jerusalemites. Uh, so... Country mouse, city mouse, you name it. They all need to come to know Christ. So let's get to know them. Let's come to know them. Verse 25 and 26. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. That name, by the way, in Hebrew, means to hear or to be heard. And remember that because he's been hearing something his whole life that's about to be fulfilled. Now, the same man was just. Remember, that was the word used to define Joseph back in Matthew 1. So someone similar to this stepfather of the Son of God, Simeon the just and devout, which is another great word that would be a perfectly fitting description of Zacharias and Elizabeth or Joseph and Mary. Simeon is just and devout. He is waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that consolation would come with the Messiah. He, he is, Simeon is a messianic Jew, just holding out hope for the day when the anointed one would come to, to preach liberty to the captives, to free us from our earthly burdens. So as he waits for the consolation of Israel, and then one more all-important detail that defines Simeon to the core, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. What do you think Simeon, the hearer, is listening to. He listens to the Spirit every opportunity. As it says in the next verse, it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. You'll live to see it. It will be worth the wait. 
consolation will be met with consummation as the promise of God is fulfilled before your very eyes. I'm so glad you've been using your ears to hear, Simeon, the promise of the Spirit. Well, you'll get to use your eyes soon. In fact, today's your day. Verse 27, he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, now pause right there just for a moment and see this golden thread that runs throughout this tiny tapestry of the life of Simeon. It's all about the Spirit for him. That's what defines him. Yes, he's just. Yes, he's devout. Yes, he's waiting for the consolation. But more than anything, he is in tune with the Spirit of God. We see it mentioned three times in quick succession. First time, the Holy Ghost was upon him. Second time, he's, it's revealed by the Holy Ghost. You'll see the Christ. And then the third time, he came by the Spirit into the temple. Do you understand why it's so important that we be consistent in our Christian discipleship? That we be steady in our spirituality? No wonder we need to renew our baptismal covenant every week and promise once again to try harder than we have before. So that, what's the promise? That the Spirit can always be with us. In some ways, you want to see a poster child for the, the sacrament promise? Look to Simeon, who seems to be keeping his part so that God can keep his. But can you imagine if he'd missed that day? I've been... I'm tired of listening to the Holy Ghost. He keeps telling me things and they never come true. I'm tired of waiting for the consolation of Israel because it just hasn't happened yet. Oh, don't lose patience and don't lose faith. And more than anything, don't lose the Spirit. Because the same Spirit that made the promise will help ensure its fulfillment. You know it'll happen because the Spirit was with you. Now listen to the Spirit as He orchestrates this rendezvous. Thanks to his constant, consistent worthiness, the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, he was where he needed to be when he needed to be there. And he found fulfillment. Verse 28 through 32, notice what he does. Once he sees him, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. And how do you say salvation? <laughs> Yeshua, Jesus. My eyes have seen Jesus, just like you promised. You helped me see him whom thou hast prepared before the face of all people. Notice it's not just the Jews. It's not just the house of Israel. Yes, Simeon is a Messianic Jew, but Jesus doesn't confine himself to that. And Luke the Gentile, writing to Gentiles, is going to make sure you know that. Okay, It's not just for his people. It's for all people. A light to lighten the Gentiles. Hear Luke perking up with that statement. And the glory of thy people, Israel. So it's for both. This passage is such classic Luke. This is Lucan, if we use the adjective, through and through. Jesus's, Jesus and his salvation is a light shining to all, Jew and Gentile alike. But did you catch one difference here? It's one of my favorites when, when, when you get a sense of Simeon. What had the Spirit promised him? You'll live to 
see the Lord's Christ. Now, do you remember when your kids were young and they were maybe you were at a store and it had expensive things and the, the kids, I just want to see it, I want to see it. And what would you tell them? Oh, we see with our eyes, not with our hands. And so often when a kid says, can I see that? It's their hands they want to use. I mean, yes, they'll use their eyes too, but they want to bring it close. They want to be able to hand it and touch it and feel it and see it in more ways than one. <laughs> and I wonder, can you imagine when Simeon sees the baby Jesus, Mary or Joseph holding him tight, and the Spirit prompting him, pushing him, impelling him, today's the day, you got to go, go right now. And he sees, and the Spirit bears witness, and that is what you've been waiting for your entire life, the consolation of Israel in human form. But, 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 but we see with our eyes, not with our hands. And Simeon go, forget that. I'm not content to let sleeping babies lie. i got to wake him up because I've been waiting for this my whole life. I'm not content just to see Jesus. No, I have to take him up in my arms. And I pray that we're Simeons like that. I pray that we want to fully embrace the Savior because I know he wants to fully embrace us in the arms of his mercy, the wings of the mother hen, swaddling us within his merciful arms. That is what Simeon is doing. May we do likewise, to which verse 33, Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him, which is such a meaningful passage as well. I think every parent marvels at their children now and then. There's never been a child more marvelous than Jesus. This little wonder there. Think about everyone who has associated with him so far. Where you have the shepherds marveling and wondering about what's been said. You had Mary marveling and wondering at the salutation of the angel Gabriel when he first came to make the Annunciation. Here you have people wondering about the rumors that, that aren't rumors, <laughs> the news, the good news that's being spread abroad. And here you have Mary and Joseph. Notice how Luke says it, by the way. Jo Joseph and his mother, his, meaning Jesus, obviously, keeping them separate. Okay, Joseph is not Jesus' father, but Mary is his mother. But the two of them marveling at these things. And then spending the rest of Jesus' childhood trying to raise him as well as they could to keep him as marvelous as they knew him to be. That's a, that's a, a tall order for all of us parents. Then verse 34 and 35, Simeon continues. Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, and what follows is a baby blessing of sorts given by this righteous old patriarch. And what does he say? Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. Think about that. He will pick up the fallen. He will help them rise again. That could describe forgiveness. It could describe resurrection. It could describe hope. But he's ready to give it. He is set for that. And not just set for the rising. Set for the fall and rising again. 
Remember creation, fall, atonement go in that order chronologically. But logically, it all starts with the atonement. The atonement is why Jesus came. The atonement is why we came. The atonement is why we fell and why we fall. To introduce us to our need of the atonement. Because Christ has been set from the very beginning, from before the foundation of the world, to make life an experience in education rather than condemnation. He has come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He is set in place, the stone of Israel, the bedrock foundation of all we have, all our hopes, every rising, but every rising again that is promised us after every fall. He's salvation after all. And he's saving us from something, from ourselves more often than not. The baby blessing goes on. Jesus will also be for a sign which shall be spoken against. This is what the second statement, the second phrase, and already we're seeing opposition promised from the very beginning. People will speak against him. It gets even worse. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also. He's speaking to Mary here. This is like the sword that would pierce the Savior's side at the crucifixion. Mary... Mother Mary, you'll be there right beside him. And that sword, that spear that pierces him will feel like a sword piercing you. There'll be more piercings even before that moment. They say that parenthood is taking your heart out of your body and putting it in someone else's. And Mary, who takes all of these things and treasures them up and keeps them and ponders them in her heart, what a heart is hers to put in Jesus, to feel what he feels. And sure enough, this piercing sword will, will cause her soul to suffer as well. But then the last line, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Speaking of swords, Jesus and his gospel is a two-edged one. And it cuts and divides those who listen, what's Simeon mean again? Oh yeah, someone who listens, someone who hears, from those who refuse to. He heard, he heard the Spirit make the promise. He heard the Spirit nudge him toward its fulfillment. Through the Spirit, he recognized the Lord when he saw him to the point that he picked him up, scooped him up in his arms. And to bless this baby, who would end up blessing the world or cursing it, depending on how we approach him, how we respond to him. Jesus will ask the apostles this later. What think ye of Christ? Who is he, as far as you're concerned? What do you believe about him? To have our hearts revealed in the way we respond to his invitations. It does separate wheat from chaff and sheep from goats and those on his right hand from those on his left. So choose wisely. We then see the spotlight turn from this sweet old man to what is most likely a sweeter and older woman. We meet Anna in verse 36 and 37. And this Anna was a prophetess. Incredible title when put in the female form. And this prophetess, 
the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. Interesting, because Asher was one of the northern tribes. It was up in the kingdom of Israel, not down in the kingdom of Judah. It was a lost tribe. Well, boy, has she found herself and finds herself in sacred space. This woman from the tribe of Asher was of a great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. So she had been worthy, moral, chaste, was married, but only was able to enjoy married life for seven years. And then she was a widow of about four score and four years. Now we just met Simeon who had been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Well, what about this sweet old lady that had been waiting for so long for some personal consolation? It's hard to be a widow in any age, but in ancient Israel particularly, as we met so many in the Old Testament. And who will care for her? Well, God will. And here we see that evidence. Eighty-four years old. And this woman, how is she described? If Simeon to the core was defined by his closeness to the Holy Ghost, then Anna is defined by her closeness to the house of God. Here it says that she departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Again, this is steady spirituality. This is consistent Christianity. She's about to meet the Christ, thanks to her consistency. This is wasting and wearing out her life in service to God and to others. Fastings, praying, night and day. If the shepherds are abiding over the fields, keeping watch at night, well, she's keeping watch in a different field, the Temple Mount. But night and day, this sweet woman, I think of her and I think of Simeon when I go to the temple because so often temple workers are of great age also. And they are waiting for certain consolations and what better place to wait than in the temple? And what better work to engage in while you're waiting than temple work? That's extending consolation to those on the other side of the veil. Well, how is her steady spirituality rewarded? Again, this is one of those instances of, oh, Anna, I'm so glad you came to the temple this day. Because Jesus didn't come every day. Mary and Joseph didn't come every day. They came this day. And then we don't see them for another 12 years. Here's what I'm trying to get across. And I hope this doesn't, I don't want to scare anyone or increase anyone's anxiety. If you're doing the best you can, then that's the best you can, okay? Uh, and I'm not saying that you have to move into the temple. Uh, even when it comes to Simeon and how often do we have the Holy Ghost, Elder Bednar made a great point that when we talk about constant companionship, it may not be 24-7 for us. We're human, we're fallen, and, but Christ is set for the fall and rising again. We repent and we receive the Spirit renewed with us. But as Elder Bednar has said, we can have the Holy Ghost a lot more than we do. And we can certainly have the Holy Ghost more often than we don't have the Holy Ghost. Same with Anna. We can't be at the temple every day. But we can be there on the days the Spirit say, says, today is the day. Because what a tragedy if she'd gone every day but this one. And that happened to be the day that Jesus came.
with his parents. Again, I'm not trying to scare anyone off into thinking that there was just a one-time shot and you weren't worthy that day. Because Jesus keeps on trying. He keeps on coming back. Okay, I, I hope the Spirit is helping you know, should I be increasing or am I okay where I am? Okay, But I do remember one experience in seminary years ago of a parent reaching out to me, expressing some concern over a child, and wondering if I could do anything to help. I'd had parents ever so often do something similar. And I was amazed at the Spirit's ability to to rearrange the lesson I'd planned to make it something better for an individual student. I'm amazed at how often God can tailor make a lesson for everyone that's intended really for a single specific soul. But this one occasion, I reworked the lesson for the next day with this one student in mind. And she wasn't there that day. She was struggling and she chose to ditch seminary, slough seminary, whatever verb you choose, and just skip the day. But the tragedy was she skipped her day. And I couldn't exactly reteach it the next time she happened to show up. Okay? So when I think of Simeon and Anna, they to me are great examples and encouragers of steady spirituality. Why do I study my scriptures every day? And why do I challenge my students to do likewise? I cannot promise them, because God doesn't promise me, that I'll have life-changing experiences every time I open them. Because some days I just put in the work. Some days I'm just going through the grind, as they say. And I read, I studied, but didn't have anything major. Same with the temple. I don't have, I have, I just went with my son a couple days ago and had an insight I've been waiting literally 29 years to have. It was amazing. Things just clicked and, and insights into the endowment that I'd never had before. I was humbled by that. Uh, but how many times did I have I had to go, not had to, been able to go to the temple without those kinds of breakthroughs, but just coming and being there and trying to increase the steadiness of my spirituality. Let the Spirit guide you as far as what you need to do with this information. But I think there is a powerful principle right there in the examples of Simeon and Anna. For that matter, in the examples of the shepherds and of Joseph and Mary and of the innkeeper and of everyone else we've met so far in this half of the Christmas story. This half comes to its end in verse 39 and 40 when it says that when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. Completely obedient, as always, doing all things according to the law of the Lord. They had Remember Jesus would say later, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. And I've been fulfilling it from day one. Well, at least day eight. A <laughs> new beginning for me. Thanks to what Mary and Joseph did for me. We can do that for our children. We can do it for each other. We can do it for ourselves. We can be steady and consistent. We can endure to the end. We can come unto Christ. We can come in haste. And we can leave in haste too, eager to spread the good news everywhere that we can. That is the message of Luke on this Christmas. 
which then invites us to turn to the story of Matthew to give us his version. Now, Matthew's version of the nativity, as we saw from our chart at the beginning of the lesson, it's not going to be female focusing on Mary quite as much as it is male focusing on Joseph. It's not going to be lowly like the shepherds. It's going to be lofty like the wise men. And they take center stage in Matthew chapter 2. His Christmas story begins, verse 1, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Now, the JST of that adds just a little. Where is the child that is born? It's not just he that's born, the child. We know that he's young. And what else do we know? That he is the Messiah of the Jews. Not just the king. He's the Messiah. He's the king of kings. He's the, the deliverer. He is the anointed one that everyone has been waiting for. Even us, far from the east, these wise men, they, they go on. For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now, if there's an irony that Luke, the Gentile writing to Gentiles, would bring in Simeon and Anna at the temple, there's an irony that Matthew, the Jew writing to Jews, would bring in outsiders, these wise men from the East. And yet, he's got purpose in that. Because if even outsiders can recognize the king of the Jews, then why can't we? Why can't we? Notice, by the way, it didn't, they didn't say, we've come to, to seek the man born or the child born king of Israel which is more of a political thing. And that's what Herod is scared to death of, the king of the kingdom of Israel. But rather king of the Jews, which suggests more of a spiritual, a religious persona. The, the title that they're after, who is the king of the Jews? Lion of the tribe of Judah, has he been born yet? It's also interesting that, they come, that they're coming from the east. Because in, in, for the Jews, nothing seems to be good that comes from the east. The east is where the Assyrians will come from. The east is where the Babylonians will come from. The east is these foreign superpowers that are going to destroy us. In fact, the east wind is the hot wind that blows in from the Arabian Peninsula. The, the desert, dry wind that withers everything and brings destruction in its wake. What a beautiful irony. That this time, as old becomes New Testament, who's coming from the East? Oh, this is good news. In fact, they heard the good news there in the East from far, far away. The shepherds were near at hand, just in Bethlehem. The wise men are far away. But the news, the good news will spread. And they come running. They've come to worship him. And they knew it was time to do so when they noticed his star. We have seen his star in the east. Some kind of heavenly portent. Some sign above that lets them know that something has happened here below. Samuel the Lamanite will be our best source of those kinds of signs in the Book of Mormon. And in his ministry, his brief ministry among the Nephites, he brings up a day, night, and day without any darkness so that the people on this hemisphere would know that something has happened somewhere on earth. He gets more specific, Samuel does, in Helaman 14, verse 5, when he says, Behold, there shall a new star arise, such an one as ye never have beheld, and this also shall be a sign unto you. And it's likely something along those lines that these wise men from the East are recognizing. 
Some scholars suggest, are they from Persia? That's from the East as well. Uh, are they astrologers so that they're studying constellations and trying to make sense of signs that might be found in heaven? It's interesting though, I mean, I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in Los Angeles where there's so much pollution that you don't see much of the night sky at all. I've joked before that if Abraham had been born in LA and God said, you'll have seed like the stars of heaven, he would have looked up in awe and said, wow, six kids, that's gonna be amazing. There's not much milky, there's not much that's milky in the Milky Way when you're in, in light pollution. Well, imagine being in the ancient world and, and there's a reason they call it the Milky Way. And amidst all of that milkiness, would you be able to recognize one additional star? I don't think so. Unless it was a star unlike anything you'd ever seen before. Something so earth-shattering, heaven-shattering, I guess we should say, that it's recognizable amidst the multitudes. Something is different about the night sky now. And they're recognizing something has happened. Heaven is sending a message of something that's occurring here on earth. Now they recognize that and act on it. They come with haste like the shepherds had. Verse 3, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And that says a lot about Herod. You ever heard the saying, happy wife equals happy life? Well, it's the exact opposite with Herod. Uh, not so happy Herod, nobody, if he's troubled, we should say, then all Jerusalem's going to be troubled too. Herod, this is Herod the Great, who was a great kingdom builder, a great palace builder, even a great temple builder, though, mm, like Solomon became by the end of his life, he was more concerned about his own buildings than the Lord's building. In fact, after he spent all this time expanding, I mean, he doubled the size of the Temple Mount. And he had to extend out into the Kidron Valley to even do so, okay? Uh, massive stones. I mean, the construction work, the engineering alone is incredible. So yes, Herod, you were great for that. He beautified the Temple of Zerubbabel to, and kind of rechristened it the Temple of, of Herod. And it was a wonder in the ancient world. It was an incredible gift that he was giving the Jews. But what else did he set up right outside the temple? A giant eagle, as in the Roman eagle. So uh, let's, let's render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And we'll render unto God what belongs to God. But Herod was doing that probably more for Caesar's sake than for the people. Definitely more than for God. Herod was about as self-centered as you can get. So Herod the Great, yeah, sat pretty well with him. I mean, if he'd wanted to, he probably would have gone after, or no, no doubt he wanted to. If he could have gotten away with it, he probably would have gone with Antiochus IV, right? Remember Epiphanes, God manifest? Well, Herod kind of felt like God among men, but was so concerned about the men among men that might be vying for his position that he was ruthless and bloody, violent, unfeeling, even to members of his own family. At one point, Herod the Great banished his own wife so that he could remarry someone with better potential political connections. You see, Herod was an Idumean. Remember Edom, the Edomites, and Idumea grows from that. At the end of section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, when the Lord warns the early saints about the world, 
and needing to escape it, he uses Idumea as his example. Usually he goes with Babylon, but that one's interesting. He's going to come down in judgment upon Idumea, a.k.a. the world. And so to take Herod the Great as an Idumean, as a worldling, is an interesting metaphor. And here he is in the, in the world of the world, trying to rule the Jewish world. And do it in not-so-Jewish ways, sometimes. And trying to be Jewish as much as he can. He's a, a convert to Judaism. But he also marries into a, the Hasmonean dynasty, which is where the Maccabees, were, were, that was where the, what they started. So here I'm an outsider, Idumean, but I want to be a Jew so I can rule the Jews. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Herodian, I am Herod. But if I could marry into the Hasmoneans, then maybe I could be the bridge to go from a Hasmonean dynasty to a Herodian dynasty. Ooh, I like the sound of that. Uh, ultimately, beyond just banishing earlier wives, he gets married multiple times to try to climb the corporate ladder, so to speak, the political ladder. But then he starts getting nervous about the family he's married into. Because they really are Hasmoneans. So at one point, he has his wife's uncle killed. Got to get him out of the way, because he's got a better claim to the, thr the throne than I do. At one point, once he's established his own kingdom, he even gets nervous about his own sons. Because if it's like father, like son, ew, then I should, I should fear them. And before they kill me, I'm going to kill them. And he ends up dispatching with at least three of them. This is scary. There's even a saying that was popular at the time that it was, it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And in Greek, there was, that was a pun because the word for pig and the word for son sound a lot alike. But think about this. If he's a co Jewish convert, then you're, it's good to be Herod's pig because he's not going to eat swine, right? Unclean animal. So you can, have, you can be Herod's pig and be fine. But Herod's son, no, he's paranoid and looking over his shoulder and doesn't want anybody to usurp the throne, even legal successors. He doesn't want to wait for... To, <laughs> They might not wait till I die to take the throne. So they're going to have to die before I do. And so he makes sure of it. I mean, honestly, at one point, he was, Herod was so self-centered that he was afraid that the way he had ruled tyrannically over Judaism, over the Jews, king of the Jews himself, well, king of Israel, uh, actually just a puppet prince, really, under the Roman th thumb, but he was so concerned that the Jews would not mourn him when he died, that his plan, which thankfully was not executed, okay, the wiser heads, cooler heads prevailed. But he had told people as he was approaching his own death, and it was a brutal, nasty, ugly death, uh, kind of rotting from the inside out. But when he was dying, he made this last kind of one of his final commands. When I die, gather up some of the most noble heads of families in Israel and kill them too. That way, there will be mourning on my death day, even if it's not for me. Maybe people won't know the difference. That's brutal. And again, thankfully, that wasn't acted upon. But that's Herod. So, back to verse 3. When Herod was troubled, yeah, you better believe all Jerusalem is troubled with him. Who's, gonna kill? Who's he going to kill now? Well, we know. Verse 4. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Notice, he didn't just ask. He commanded. He's used to getting his own way. Okay. Now, there's a Joseph Smith translation of this verse as well. It says, He demanded of them, saying, Where is the place that is written of by the prophets in which Christ should be born? 
I mean, that's how they're going to know. In the King James account, it's just they de- he demanded of them where Christ should be born. It's like, well, how are we supposed to know? But Herod knows better. In fact, how's this for the final line of the JST of that verse? After he asks about prophets and what's been written down, I mean, he is a Jewish convert after all. The passage then ends, for he greatly feared, yet he believed not the prophets. I mean, this guy is a bundle of contradictions. A Jew that wants to rule Jews, but doesn't want to be ruled by the real king of the Jews or the God of the Jews. Not the king, not the, not the God of Israel. He knows that there's prophets out there, and the prophets probably knew. So turn to the prophets. I don't know. I didn't go to synagogue growing up. I don't read scripture. But where are my chief priests? Where are my scribes? Where are those who know their stuff? Because I know prophets have probably prophesied correctly, even though I choose not to believe in them myself. It's so interesting how selective we can be. That when we, when we don't want prophets, then we don't want prophets. And it, they, have, they have nothing to do with my life. And so I can safely ignore them. But then all of a sudden, something's happening in my life that I, seems like it's going in the wrong direction. Is it then that we kind of tail between our legs, come back to prophets that we didn't believe, but are now we're starting to fear maybe they were right all along? That's what's happening to Herod. Then verse 5 and 6, these chief priests and scribes who do know their scriptures, well, they know what to quote. They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and here they're quoting Micah, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Now, The Micah version that we have in our King James Version is slightly different, but close enough. Micah 5 verse 2 reads this way. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Either way, you get a sense of the lowly being elevated to the lofty. In the way we read it in Matthew Bethlehem is not the least after all. Again, Bethlehem was just a small town. Uh, Kind of surprising that David would emerge from such a place as that. When you see the Micah version calling it little among the thousands of Judah. So whether it's least or whether it's little, what's coming of it? (laughs) Nothing least about it. The greatest is on his way. Not little town of Bethlehem. No, it's it's the home of the great God himself. And to see Christ emerge from little town of Bethlehem, that's, the, that's what's shocking here. This is not just nowhere Nazareth, can any good thing come of Nazareth, but before David was born, it was a sense of what good thing can come from Bethlehem. This is little town of Bethlehem on the same lines as nowhere Nazareth. And what is Jesus doing? He's condescending even geographically, in where he's going to come. I'll come down to a place that would shock everyone, that anyone lofty would (laughs) descend to that level of lowliness. Jesus does that in so many ways. And to understand the condescension of Christ that is taking place, I'll come down to Bethlehem's lowly level and then raise it to be the birthplace of the Son of God.
By the way, there's also a Joseph Smith translation of this passage where they say, these scribes and, and chief priests say to King Herod, it is written by the prophets. And notice their version is plural. So are we missing something here? It's not just Micah making this kind of prophecy. It's written by the prophets, and then it goes on. For thus have they said, the word of the Lord came unto us, all these plural pronouns, saying, And thou Bethlehem, which lieth in the land of Judea, in thee shall be born a prince, which art not the least among the princes of Judea. For out of thee shall come the Messiah, who shall save my people Israel. So it's not just least and lowly when it comes to the place, Bethlehem. Beware of considering the person as least and lowly. This is no mere babe of Bethlehem. This is a prince and a prince of princes, a king of kings, a lord of lords, a messiah, the anointed one. He will come to save. Here's salvation personified. Here's Jesus. Now, as I mentioned before, borrowing from Jeff Chadwick, if Mary and Joseph also know this prophecy, and Joseph was a much better Jew than Herod ever dreamed of being, uh, he's just, he knows the law, he would have known his scriptures, he would have known Micah. And if, when the angel comes and says, this child that your wife is, is bringing into the world, he will be salvation, this is the Messiah and he will come. You wonder if Joseph and Mary's minds raced to Micah and that gave them all the added, uh, added impetus to follow this registration that would bring them down to Bethlehem to more than just come for the birth, but to, to set up shop, to build a home, to decide to stay for a while so the people would know that, their, that this son, this baby, was a Bethlehemite. We will see in the book of John later on in the, during the Savior's ministry that there is confusion. And people will say, Jesus? No, he can't be the Messiah because he's from Nazareth. And everybody knows the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. It's really interesting. They don't know the backstory well enough. They don't understand. And, and part of that is what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 2 of why they couldn't stay like they may have planned on doing so let's keep reading and get there. But back to Herod first, 7 and 8. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, let's just do this privately behind closed doors. I don't want the rest of the world to know that the king of the Jews has just been born in Bethlehem. Oh, no, no, no. We can't let the, the rumors of Micah start to spread. I mean, let them go hear some, some shepherds, maybe, but, but not wise men? No. So let's do this privately. And he inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. You see, I need to know how old this baby is. Was there something new in the heavens? Something noticeable among this Milky Way of stars? When did it appear? Because I can do the math from there. Well, once he figured out the timeline, then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. Now, I don't know if I've ever been so tempted to cherry-pick a verse and scrub it of its immediate context so that I could use it elsewhere, because that's a beautiful passage. If, if we whitewashed it all, if we, if we, we'd have to do some serious sanitizing, because it's got Herod the Great's nasty fingerprints all over it. It's in his voice. Those are his words. 
But if you put them in the mouth of someone like Simeon, can you imagine, or one of the people that heard from the shepherds, can you imagine someone else saying, go and search diligently for this Christ child and bring me word again once you've found him so that I can come and worship him too. That's beautiful. But only if it's said sincerely. It's interesting as we talk about Christmas to think about all the Christmas songs that are out there. So many of them so beautiful and so Christ-centered. But the challenge is, if you're a famous singer, band, artist, whatever, musician, it almost seems obligatory that you're supposed to come out with a Christmas album sooner or later. And you'll hear the Beatles sing Christmas songs, and you'll hear the Beach Boys sing Christmas songs, and you'll hear Taylor Swift sing Christmas songs, and Josh Groban sing Christmas songs, and I'm sure there's even non-Christians that have Christmas albums out there. Because, hey, it's tis the season, and it'll sell. People love my voice, and they love Christmas. So put the two together, and bingo! This is beautiful. But is it King Herod singing Christmas songs? With all the right words, and no belief behind them. I, I worry that at any moment, any of us are this close from becoming a Herod ourselves. And going through the motions... And saying things when our heart is not behind them. Remember what Jesus said uh, through Isaiah and straight to Joseph Smith in the Sacred Grove. They draw near me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And what Herod just said in that verse is a perfect example of that. His heart was nowhere near. Come and worship him? No. The only thing that Herod worships is himself. And so he has to get rid of any Anyone else that might draw a little bit of worshipfulness in their direction. But, he, but he's got to know. Find out, just find out where he is. Get the confirmation. Because I now know general vicinity, Bethlehem. I know general timing. How long ago was the sign in the heavens? But I want to know something specific. Because I'm after an enemy of one. Verse 9 and 10, when they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star, which they saw in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now, sadly, this star is an astronomical mystery. We don't know well enough exactly what's happening. I mean, it, the fact, it seems like it, it, well, it came, but then went, or so it seemed. Because it talks about them seeing a star in the east and recognizing, okay, something happened. It's go time. Uh, it's the king of the Jews. Have they had similar prophecies among them that Samuel the Lamanite gave, gave among the Nephites? But it's still vague. Uh, if he's the king of the Jews, then let's go to the capital of the Jews, because where else would the king be, right? So they come straight to Jerusalem. So in some ways was this, the star originally more of a sign in time rather than a sign in space. We're giving timetable here. The king has been born. Let's go find him. And however long it takes to get ready, however long it takes to go from wherever they were in the east, some time has passed here. This is not baby born, angels say, go shepherds, and then star says, uh, you better book it, wise men. No, this is some time passing and them coming, and they have reached Jerusalem. Let's ask the so-called king of the Jews, 
who the real king of the Jews is, surely he'll know and probably be ready to worship right alongside us. But then when they're told it's Bethlehem, it's not the star telling them to go to Bethlehem. It's they're wondering. They don't know. It's the people who know the prophets who can then answer that question. Then when they go to Bethlehem, somehow there's this reappearance of the star, or so it seems to be, the star which they had seen, which they saw in the east. Now it goes before them. And this is, I, I don't know how that works, some kind of movement now, till it can, comes and stands over where the young child was. And notice, it's a young child now. This is Jesus, the child, living in, in Bethlehem, not the babe lying in a manger. Shepherds saw a baby, wise men see a child. And back to the star, scientists have wondered uh, throughout history, what is this? Some recognizable thing amidst the multitude of specks of light in the, uh, on the, in the sky. Was it a supernova, some have suggested? Was it a solar flare as a possibility? Lots of people suggested a comet, because with a comet, at least there's movement. And if it's go, coming from the east and moving toward the direction, okay, great. But what is to stand over where the young child was? I don't know how a comet does that. Some have wondered about meteors, but does that last long enough? I, I don't know. There's all kinds of possibilities there. There's actually an interesting book written about the Star of Bethlehem by an astrophysicist, an astronomer. It's published by Rutgers University Press, so this is an academic book. But what this scientist suggests is what if it was a convergence of planets and stars? And when the, when the planets align, so to speak, and that's often used as some kind of portent or sign of something taking place, this scientist actually has combed the, the historical data and come up with a few possibilities. He said there was a conjunction of Jupiter, Saturn, the Moon, and the Sun within the constellation of Aries on April 17th, 6 BC. Hmm. He said there was another conjunction, another alignment of the stars and planets between Jupiter, Venus, and the star Regulus. They met in the constellation of Leo on June 17th, 2 BC. And a third he mentions, there was a, a confluence or a conjunction of Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars in the constellation of Pisces in 6 BC. This particular scientist leans towards the, the earlier one, the April 17th, 6 BC. And our BCs, there's some confusion there, there's some interesting articles. Jeff Chadwick has taken that one on as well. Uh, it, fascinating if you want to really dig into some of the history and the science and the astronomy and the possibilities. Fascinating. But when stars align, when planets and stars converge, there is such a brightness there that it's something that you wouldn't normally see. Uh, there's even a chance for it to move as the, the earth is spinning. So one day it's this location and the next day it might be somewhere else as opposed to the stars that are typically the same f f over long periods of time. Uh, chance times you can see it and then you don't see it and times you see it again. So anyway, fascinating things and possibilities, whatever it might be, it is bringing it's, it is wise men following light to find truth, to find the Savior. And as I've seen on many a Christmas card, and it's true if you mean it, then wise men are still doing likewise today. Are we recognizing signs of the times? Do we, can we discern light as it guides us toward all truth? 
the wise still will. Now, verse 10 and 11, when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy, just like the shepherds had before. Glad tidings of great joy to all people. Well, there's some good news for them. And when they were come into the house, notice it wasn't a stable, it wasn't a cave, it was a house. Had Joseph and Mary stayed long enough? Were they intending to to set up work and home and let this babe of Bethlehem be the child of Bethlehem and the teenager of Bethlehem and the man of Bethlehem so that everyone would know that Micah's prophecy had been fulfilled in this Messiah? Well, they come into the house and they saw the young child, again, not the baby, with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now we always talk about we three kings of Orientar. And we have no idea if there were three in number. I have three in my nativity set, uh, but then again, they're in the stable right next to the shepherds. (laughs) And we know that's not historically accurate. We don't know how many or what age or nationality. We don't know much about them at all. The best thing we do know is that they were wise. And that's something I hope to be myself. But, we, but traditionally, it's guessed that there were three simply because there were three gifts. And if there are three gifts and three givers, okay, let's talk about the three wise men, whether or not there was that number. But what I do love about the gifts is their symbolism. It proves not just how wealthy they were. Remember, lowly shepherds, but wealthy. The poor among the, out in the fields with flocks. But it's the rich and wealthy here, the learned, the wise. Exactly who Matthew is probably projecting upon his, his audience. You Jews who think you're above. and, and No, you're not this wise. Uh, you're not this noble unless you come to, to find Jesus yourself. But think about this in terms of the wisdom of their choice of presence. You know, it's interesting, some of you out there are probably really good gift givers. And often the best gifts are the ones that are tailor-made for the person that they're being given to. Anybody can give a gift card uh, or cash. Because then it's like, and those are great gifts because it, it's honoring the, in, the, the agency of the, of the recipient, right? You can use what, on whatever you want. That's great. It's a great gift. I'm not trying to poo-poo it, okay? But there is something powerful about a gift that is that is tailored, a gift that this person's going to love it because it has them written all over it. And that's exactly what gold, frankincense, and myrrh say. These wise men know who this child is. Remember when the shepherds are told by the angel, the three identities, he's Savior, he's Christ, he's Lord, I am. In a similar way, you see this among the wise men. And the best explanation I've ever heard for it is in that great Christmas carol, We Three Kings of Orientar. It might have been giving mere assumptions in the number in the title, but it gives incredible explanations of the three gifts. Listen to it. Each gift gets its own verse. The second one explains the gold. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never over us all to reign. Gold is a gift you give to a king, and not just any king. Yes, he is born king of the Jews, as was asked of Herod, 
But he's being crowned again. Ah, so this is not his first kingdom. Okay, this is the premortal king of kings descending to take up the throne once again. And so we crown him again. Not just past king and present king, but future king as well. King forever, ceasing never. And not just king of the Jews, over us all to reign. The third verse explains the frankincense. So imagine another king speaking or singing this verse. Frankincense to offer have I. Incense owns a deity nigh. Prayer and praising all men raising, worshiping God on high. Oh, Zacharias would have loved this verse since he was offering incense at the incense altar in the temple when the angel appeared to him. So think about what happens at an incense altar. And as we studied last week, the incense represents the prayers of the saints as they ascend to heaven. That's what this sweet smell, this sweet savor is that fills the house of God. So incense is a gift that you give to God. If gold is something I give to a mortal king, then incense is something I give to a God. And sure enough, incense owns a deity nigh. That's what Frank incense is. Okay? And then the second half of that verse, prayer and praising, all men raising, that's the smoke rising to heaven, worshiping. God on high. And that's what this gift represents. The next verse explains the myrrh. Another singer, another king, another wise man. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume. Breathes a life of gathering gloom. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. If frankincense is incense in a major key, then myrrh is incense in a minor key. Both of them are kind of these gum, like these resins that you take from trees or bushes. They're rare and thus expensive. Uh, a gift on the par of gold itself. But to see that frankincense was burned to raise the smoke of the incense, myrrh, meanwhile, was often used in embalming. It's actually really interesting. By the time you get to the end of the Savior's life, post-crucifixion, good old Nicodemus, who we'll meet in a month or so, uh, early on in the Savior's ministry in the book of, of John, Nicodemus was a wealthy man. He was a wise man. He was a leader of the Jews. He was unsure. He comes to see Jesus. We'll get the whole story in John chapter 3. But by the end of, his, of the Savior's life, Nicodemus is coming out of the shadows, a little more bold than before, and he donates a hundred pounds of myrrh and aloes so that the women can embalm the body of Jesus before they lay it there to rest. In some ways, Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb it is, and Nicodemus, who is bringing the, the myrrh, it, those two are the two wise men at the end of the Savior's life. Here we meet the wise men at the beginning. But it's coming full circle. And this is suggestive of the sacrifice Jesus would make in laying down his life for the sins of the world. Thus, that verse speaks of gathering gloom. It speaks of sorrowing and sighing and bleeding and dying and being laid in a stone-cold tomb. The next verse of that song 
It was all written in the 1850s by, uh, I believe, a, a clergyman in the United States. He understood this symbolism so beautifully and ties it all together in the next verse. Glorious now behold him arise. Jesus is rising now. This is Christmas turning into Easter. This is birth, finding fulfillment in death and then resurrection. So glorious now behold him arise. In all three of his identities that we've seen in these three gifts, King and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, earth to heaven replies. You hear that? King and God and sacrifice. King, gold. God, frankincense. Sacrifice, myrrh. It's all coming together. And these wise men were wise enough to recognize in Jesus all of these identities. May we be equally wise. The song, every verse ends with the same beautiful chorus. And it's an invitation to us all as we sing, O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. How oh, no wonder it needs to lead us westward. If we're coming out of the wicked world in the east, if we've fallen east of Eden, and for us to return to God's presence, we will have to go westward ourselves. It is still proceeding, and we can too, if we'll simply follow its light. That beautiful star, perfect light. I, I wish we sang We Three Kings of Orientar more often. And as we think of the gifts that we are giving the Lord, are they testimonies that we know who he is and we understand his identities? So beautiful. Then verse 12, we're back to the story and it's so abrupt, the end here. We only see them there with this young child, Jesus, for a single verse. And in fact, that, that single verse mentions that they saw Mary there, but they didn't even mention Joseph. He's still alive. We'll see him in the next, in just a moment. But did he ever get to meet the wise men? I don't know. Was he gone at work? And was this very quickly? Because what's, what's tricky here, if you look at verse 12, it says that being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Now, what's odd about verse 12 is the, this warning that came in the dream is nonspecific. It simply says that they were warned, don't go back to Herod, just go. Oh, okay. I wonder why. I don't know. I mean, he seemed like such a nice guy. I mean, he kept saying that we needed, he, he wanted us to come back so he could come and worship him too. I mean, we can only carry so much in the saddlebags of our camels. But the so-called king of, I mean, this puppet king of the Jews has so much wealth that he's skimmed off of all of these uh, imperial projects. Uh, imagine the gifts that he could come and bring to this young child. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to worship just like we did. We don't see them getting any of that. It's simply, don't go back to Herod, just go home. And they do. Now, if it would have been, if they would have known the reasons why they shouldn't go back to Herod, then undoubtedly they would have told Joseph and Mary and this young child, Jesus, you should come with us. Uh, we got some extra room in the, in the camels ourselves. You know, on the camel, let's get, get, get you out of here. 
But that's not what happens. They're simply warned and then they leave, probably wondering why. And then another revelation comes to Joseph with the specifics that he didn't get from the wise men. To me, it's interesting that sometimes you hear apostles talk about the economy of heaven. And it, it, they, they're referring to stewardships and circles of influence and who we're responsible for and, and so on. And to me, it's interesting that God honors that as far as the wise men and Joseph are concerned. Because for the wise men, what you need to know is that you're not to go back to Herod. Just leave. And they obey without question. But the, who needs to know the reason why? Who needs to protect this son of God? Well, the father figure whose responsibility it is to preside, provide, and protect. Joseph, this is your stewardship. You're the one that needs to know about the danger that your, your stepson, your foster son, is under. Uh, so the revelation is going to be given to you and to you alone. Fascinating how, how this works. So verse 13, when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Interesting details there, but before we get to them, just recognize the stewardship that God is honoring. And he's not telling the wise men to, to warn Joseph. I'll warn him directly. Just like I didn't just tell Mary, and then Mary had to go convince Joseph. No, the angel appears to Joseph himself in that dream and tells him all that he needs to know. And Joseph acted on it then. He's going to act upon it here. Now, there's, so there's a lot he knows. There's some things he doesn't know. He doesn't know how long he's going to be there, for example. He's told, just go to Egypt until I bring thee word. This could last a long time. I, Joseph has no idea. Notice also this detail that is, the angel is clear about. Take the young child and his mother. He didn't say, take your son and wife. Because that would be confusing the relationship. And the angel understands it perfectly. <laughs> no, uh, you're not the father here. So take the young child, God's son, and then take the young child's mother. It's actually even interesting because he could have said your wife because by now they're definitely husband wife officially. But uh, as far as God is concerned, <laughs> the vertical relationship between mother and Jesus is far more important than the horizontal relationship between Joseph and Mary. Okay? The holy family centers on Jesus. And that everybody's just connected through him. But notice this also, the fact that they are to go to Egypt, not, not follow the wise men back east to possibly to Persia, but go to Egypt because hasn't there been some other Joseph that had, was famous for having dreams that ended up bringing his family to Egypt so they could survive the, the death that would have come through the famine? Interesting parallels here. And so Joseph is now uh, following his namesake and bringing his family down to Egypt with them. This is one of those instances in which Egypt, which is often a symbol of evil, wicked world, can also be a symbol of something positive. Because, yes, Egypt is where you go to be in bondage, but Egypt is also where you go to outlast the famine in the land. In some ways, it's a lot like the world. That has its positives and its negatives. I mean, we have to eat, 
right? We have to go to work, right? And so we have to go to Egypt and, and Egyptian influence will be around our family. That can be tricky. But if I can be in the world and choose not to be of it, if I can bring my tokens of the covenant with me and keep keeping the law of Moses, then I'll be safe even in Egypt. I can receive what Egypt has to offer. I can plunder the riches of Egypt. We talked about that often last year and get the good that the world has to offer, always with my sights set on my return to Israel. The Holy Land is where my citizenship lies. I just have a passport to go to Egypt to pay the bills, okay, to protect or provide for my family. Joseph is doing both of those, like a good father figure would. And look at how quickly he acts on this impression. Verse 14 and 15, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. There you have immediate, unquestioning obedience. I don't even know if he waits, you know, wakes up in the, in the, in the morning or just woke up out of sleep and just, I had the, the, the clearest dream, scared me to death. It was a nightmare that Herod is after us. More accurately, he's after this young child. He's going to destroy him. And that sounds like exactly something that Herod would do. So we got to get out of here. And we don't have time to wait. We don't have time to waste. Gather up the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. That might pay for the journey. That might allow us to get our feet under us in Egypt. And I can set up shop. I can build houses. I can, I can do whatever is needed uh, to, to outlive Herod for as long as it is required until we can come back here. It's actually interesting, again, to think, what, I mean, what is, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus seem to be poor their entire lives. So what, what, what were they going to do with gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Most likely, this is to help them through this next stage. Unbeknownst to the wise men, nobody, they weren't wise enough to predict that. But they were exactly the kinds of things that, they, that they were spiritual gifts to recognize Christ's spiritual identities, but they were temporal gifts as well to help the Holy Family get through some difficult, difficult years. And how many years were there? Well, look at the next verse. They were there until the death of Herod. We don't know exactly timetables here, but Herod is now gone, and now you can return. But notice Matthew. Matthew is the one writing here. He's noticing the lofty Herod, the lofty, the wise men, the males, Joseph, but he's also recognizing scripture from the Old Testament and pointing out fulfillment every chance that he can. So they were there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. You see, not only does Matthew know Micah, Matthew knows Hosea as well. And in Hosea 11 verse 1, When Israel was a child, then I loved him, and called my son out of Egypt. That was a prophecy fulfilled collectively in bringing Israel out of bondage, but it was also a prophecy fulfilled individually in bringing the young child Jesus, God's son, out of Egypt after the death of Herod. There's a layer cake for Hosea too. Okay? Then verse 16, then Herod, so we, we got a kind of flashback here. Okay? We, we follow the Holy Family down to Egypt. They stay there as long as they need. They only come back after Herod dies. But then, flashback, back to the palace. Herod's sitting there waiting, wondering, what's taking those wise men so long? And in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, 
And other translations simply say that he was deceived by them. But the irony of the mockery is that that sounds, that's probably what's going on in Herod's mind. He's so full of himself and so paranoid about what people might think that anyone who refuses to obey me is mocking me, is belittling me and making me seem of no consequence. Well, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, he was exceeding wrath and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof or all the surrounding region, at least all of those from two years old and under according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. You see, that must have been the timing when the star appeared. That first conjunction of the planet, something new in the heavens, and something just happened. And it took two years, it seems, for the wise men to reach Jerusalem. It took two years of Joseph and Mary living in, Jerusalem, in, in Bethlehem, going from the cave to a, a, a home where they're staying. Now traditionally this is called the massacre of the innocents because these babies, these two-year-olds and under did nothing wrong. It's tragic to think what what paranoia on the part of Herod is causing. Paranoid that the wise men were out to, to mock him and make him look like an idiot but also paranoid that there's some child, some little boy growing up right beneath the, the shadow of my palace, five or six miles away there in Bethlehem. I don't know which one it is, so let's kill them all. Just like I'm not sure which of my own sons I have to worry about, so let's get rid of anyone that I'm worried might try to usurp, usurp the throne. <sighs> yes, better to be Herod's pig than his son. And better to be off in Egypt than an innocent in Bethlehem with no idea what's about to come. Now, on the one hand, skeptics say there's no evidence in any historical record about the massacre of the innocents. Why didn't Josephus bring it up? Why didn't some Roman historian bring it up? Why didn't Mark, Luke, or John bring it up? Well, this is Matthew's focus, king of the Jews, writing to Jews, trying to help them see, among other things, oh yeah, Old Testament fulfillment. Micah prophesied of Bethlehem. Hosea talked about Egypt. And a Joseph, yeah, a Joseph who went to, bring, to Egypt, brought his family there, out, was able to survive as a result. And when they, but what happens before they come back? Pharaoh, concerned about his throne, his kingdom, massacres the innocent Hebrews. It's so interesting. I mean, even scholars have said, well, if Bethlehem was a, I mean, Jerusalem was a, sm a smaller city. Bethlehem, oh, oh, little town of Bethlehem. I mean, even town might seem like too big. This is just some little tiny hamlet off in the outskirts. And, and depending on how wide the coasts thereof were included, some have suggested, were there six baby boys, two years and under, in that environment, in that region? Were there 12? Were there maybe 20? I mean, tradition over the years has talked about thousands and thousands. But that, would, that was simply not the case, because Bethlehem was not that big of a town at the time of Jesus. 
And if you're talking about Roman Empire and all these kinds of things, then slaying half a dozen to a dozen children maybe wasn't newsworthy. Well, it was newsworthy of the worst kind to those families that were left mourning. And we'll see that in just a moment. But as far as Matthew is concerned, I have to bring this up. I've got to include this in the narrative because it's Old Testament 2.0. It's the echo. And my Jewish hearers have to know that the types and shadows are being fulfilled in this little boy. And just like Pharaoh slew the innocents, so did Herod. Just like Joseph brought his family to Egypt, so did Joseph of Nazareth slash Bethlehem. And just, we'll see this later, as the Israelites come out of Egypt, God bringing forth his son, thanks for that, Hosea, he passes through the water. Oh, Jesus will pass through the Jordan River in baptism. They will go to, they will, 40 years they'll wander in the wilderness. Ah, Jesus, 40 days out in the wilderness being tempted of the adversary. I mean, you see the parallels? Matthew does and wants to make sure that his Jewish audience sees them all clearly as well. But back to those innocents and their families that were, leaving, that were gr grieving their loss. Look at 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. And Matthew is packing in the prophets in this chapter. Okay? So let's add Jeremiah to the mix. Who said, In Ramah was there a voice heard. Lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Oh, for Matthew to see in Jeremiah's words a fulfillment here, Another layer cake. It's actually interesting even to bring in Rachel. Rachel weeping for her children. Who were those children? Her specific children among the tribes of Israel. Ten of those boys belonged to other wives. Leah and Zilpah and Bilhah. But Rachel's were Joseph and Benjamin. The youngest two. The most needy, the most helpless. And... What caused some of Rachel's weeping? The fact that she wouldn't be around to raise them. In Matthew's fulfillment, it's the children that are killed. And the Rachel's that, were, that wanted to raise them that never had the, the chance. In the original Old Testament version, it was reversed. And it was Rachel who dies in childbirth, bringing Benjamin into the world. By the way, where was Rachel buried? We have the tomb of the patriarchs and the tomb of the matriarchs in Hebron, where Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah, hmm, Leah was buried alongside Jacob. Where was Rachel buried? In Bethlehem. To picture that place watered by the matriarch's tears and then watered all over again. When people died in Jesus' place. There's a powerful irony there too. I'm, these babies perished in the place of Jesus. Three decades later, Jesus would, would return the favor. And he would die not only for them, but for all of us. This is Substitution. This is very vicarious sacrifice at its finest.
If you continue the story in verse 19 and 20. But when Herod was dead, now we get to flashback forward. Okay? Behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream, the JST says, vision, to Joseph in Egypt. I told you I'd let you know when, and now it's when. He said, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. He'll be safe now. So yet more dreams for this more modern Joseph, just like his ancient namesake. Uh, and yet, as Matthew is always clear to, to record, always one step removed from Jesus. Think about how many times in Matthew 1 and in Matthew 2, it's the young child and his mother. They're, they're only connected to you in, in, in legal terms. You are not the young child's father. Okay? Matthew wants to keep that straight. Next, verse 21 and 22, he arose and took the young child and his mother, there's the phrase again, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea, in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, there's another round of presiding, providing, protecting, in his stewardship, receiving this revelation, he's warned of God in a dream, and he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. So it's not back to Bethlehem for the Holy Family. It's not back to the home that Joseph most likely built there. It's not back to the life of a Bethlehemite that would allow people to know more clearly where Jesus is from, to have those messianic credentials more clear in people's minds. No, it's back to Galilee. Specifically, it's back to Nazareth, as we'll see in the next verse. But to understand what else is happening here with Herod's family, some of his sons he didn't kill, okay? Uh, they were as safe as Herod's pigs were. And one of them, Archelaus, as is mentioned here, is in charge of Jerusalem, Judea, the southern part of, of the kingdom. Uh, there'll be other sons. Philip is in charge of the eastern area. Uh, Antipas is in charge of the north. There's several Herods out there that outlive their father. There, he was Herod the Great. They're, they're, these are Herods the not-so-great, but also the not-quite-so-evil. And by going to Galilee, at least Joseph and his family are, are away from, from headquarters. They're, away, they're not in, under the shadow of, of Jerusalem. Back in Galilee, they'll be a little more safe, a little more secure, if also a little more obscure. And unfortunately, that's going to color some of the impressions that people have on this Jesus of Nazareth. Next week when we meet Nathaniel who says, what can any good thing come of Nazareth? He's not just making fun of a podunk town. He's also perhaps speaking messianically. Can any good thing, or in this case, great thing, messianic thing come of Nazareth? No, he's got to come from Bethlehem. Well, Jesus did. He just doesn't grow up there as possibly planned. Specifically, verse 23 he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. And then one more chance for Matthew to point out Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now the footnote there suggests that this is a lost verse. And there are several of those. In Corinthians, for example, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, this is my third letter to you. Huh? Then why do we call it 2 Corinthians? Well, because we've lost one. Okay? And there's other verses that talk about, oh, it's in this book, and we don't have that book. 
So there are lost books out there. And this is a possible lost scripture because Matthew is quoting from some prophet that he doesn't name. He just says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. But we don't see anything specifically in the Old Testament that says that he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, some have said, well, does he mean Nazarite? Because, I mean, John the Baptist was along those lines. No, no wine for, for him that we saw last week in, in Luke chapter 1. But Jesus doesn't live like a Nazarite the way John does. Hmm. So, I mean, yes, he's separate. Yes, he's consecrated to God, believe me. But not in that same kind of way. Okay, so is he going to be a Nazarene? Who says that? Well, this is another instance where the Hebrew might help. And some scholars have pointed out, is he talking about not so much a Nazarene, like he's coming from the city of Nazareth, but is this a play on the word for branch? Because that many prophets have, have said that. So when Matthew is bringing up the fact that it's fulfilled by the prophets, plural, he's going to be called a branch because Netzer is the Hebrew word for branch. And Netzeret, Nazareth, we basically could call it Branchville or Branchboro uh, or any kind of the town of the branch. Ah, is that what they're getting at? Because many a prophet brought that up. Isaiah 4 verse 2, In that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious. Isaiah 11 verse 1, There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's an even better one, because it's talking about the stem of Jesse, that stump. And where was Jesse from? Oh, Bethlehem. So out of the stump of Bethlehem will come a Nazareth, will come a branch living in Branchville. You see it in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and the king shall reign and prosper and, ex and execute judgment and justice in the earth. Later in Jeremiah, he says it again in chapter 33, 15. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch, capital B here, of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. Zechariah brings it up twice in 3 verse 8. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch, all capital letters there. And Zechariah 6 verse 12. Behold, the man whose name is the branch, again, all capitals. He shall grow up out of his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Over and over, the prophets, two in Isaiah, two in Jeremiah, two in Zechariah, speak of the Messiah coming as a branch. And so is that what Matthew's getting at? Now, he has the Hebrew knowledge to get it. I have a feeling he knows his audience has the knowledge of Hebrew to get it. And so for them, oh, ooh, a netzer. He goes from Naz to Nazareth from Bethlehem. Ooh, that, Matthew, that's good. That's good. Impressive. By the way, Math the King James Version ends there. As Jesus is there in Nazareth, and we are ready for the ministry to begin as of next week. Turn the page, Matthew 3, and he's getting baptized, and we're ready to go. But the Joseph Smith translation adds three more verses here, and they're beautiful. This is what we have by inspiration, and it describes the growing up years in Nazareth for the young boy Jesus. It came to pass that Jesus grew up with his brethren, and that could be Extended family there in small town Nazareth. It could be younger half-brothers and sisters, since those are mentioned later in the text. But more than growing up, in what ways is he growing? He waxed strong and waited upon the Lord. 
for the time of his ministry to come. He served under his father, this is lowercase f, stepfather, foster father, father figure. And he spake not as other men, neither could he be taught, for he needed not that any man should teach him. And after many years, the hour of his ministry drew nigh. And then we turn the page and watch him get baptized. I love this addition. His growing in strength physically, we'll see Luke talk about this in a moment, waiting upon the Lord until his ministry is ready to begin. Can you picture? I mean, it wasn't just Simeon that was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Even the consoler himself was waiting for it. And as we'll see, as we turn back to the end of Luke 2 in a moment, Jesus is getting antsy. And I would say impatient if impatience, as long as you don't say impatience is, is not a virtue here. Uh, it's to me fascinating to see, just picture those 30 years and what's happening. Growing up physically and growing up in God. Chomping at the bit. Is it go time? Can I start? Can I be about my father's business? Can I do his work? Not yet. Not yet. Okay, fine. Then what do I do in the meantime? Well, you serve under your father. This artisan, this stonemason, this carpenter, this builder, this, cons- this creator. Uh, yeah, maybe you'll learn more from him than you realize. Maybe from him and from Mar- your mother Mary, who treasured these things, who kept them in her heart, who pondered, and I'm sure shared back with you who you really are. You grew up with all of that, and you served under them. Of course, in ways, you are like everyone else. Learning the family trade, going to synagogue with the other little boys and learning your Old Testament, but in other ways, you're nothing like them. When it says that he spake not as other men, and neither did he speak like other boys or other teens, he was different because he knew he was different. The fact that he needed not that any man should teach him is so powerful. That doesn't mean he was not coachable or not teachable. I think in some ways it simply means he was even ahead of his teachers. Uh, That everything he was learning in synagogue was ringing true because never in human history has anyone had a thinner veil than Jesus. Because no one was worthier of the Holy Ghost than he. And so to learn things from his mother to learn things from his foster father, but to learn things from Scripture. We talked about this at the end of the Old Testament. In some ways, the Old Testament was Jesus' patriarchal blessing. And for him to study it in synagogue and realize, whoa, that's who, I'm, that's who I am? That's who I've been sent to be? Whoa. You remember the scene? I always picture this in my mind as Joseph Smith is translating the Book of Mormon and he gets to 2 Nephi 3. Hilarious moment in my mind, because as he's translating the record of Joseph of Egypt that Lehi is quoting to his son Joseph, there's two other Josephs mentioned in the text. And Joseph of Egypt is saying, someday the Lord will raise up a choice seer unto my seed that will be a lot like me. In fact, he'll be so much like me, he'll have my name. And while we're at it, he'll have the name of his father. Uh, and, and here's Lehi telling his Joseph about that Joseph speaking of these two other Josephs. Are we getting our Joseph straight? But I picture Joseph of Palmyra translating this prophecy from Joseph of Egypt and saying, okay, write this down, Oliver, you know, and he's scribing it out and it says, oh, and his name shall be after my name. Oh, hmm, his name's going to be Joseph also. Interesting. 
And, and after the name of his father. Okay, so it's going to be a, not just a Joseph, it's going to be a Joseph Jr. I'm just like, whoa. He knew me? I'm in this book? And at least by that moment, it's becoming much more clear to Joseph Smith, God has a work for me to do. Well, if you thought that was eye-opening for Joseph, imagine how eye-opening the experiences it would be for young Jesus to come to know, that's me. That's who I am. And I've got work to do. What are we waiting for? And yet he kept waiting. It's with that in mind that we can go back to Luke chapter 2 and catch the last, oh, 13 verses or so. Because that's where we pick up the story. You really do have to separate the middle of Luke to, to inject uh, Matthew into it to get the chronology straight. So we saw the birth. The angels make this glorious announcement of good news. The shepherds come rejoicing. They spread the word abroad. Eight days in, Jesus is circumcised. Forty days in, he's brought to the temple. Simeon and Anna have their life-changing experiences they've waited a lifetime for. And then Mary and Joseph and young Jesus settle into life in Bethlehem for around two years until the wise men come to bring these gifts. And then Joseph's warned, get out of here. They go to Egypt for however long it takes and then return, not to life in Bethlehem, but to life in Nazareth. And Jesus grows without much need for instruction until he's 12. Now we go back to Luke and pick up where we left off. Because in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. That verse describes the Savior's first 12 years. It was spent growing up in God, waxing strong. The King James translators say strong in spirit, but the Greek word just says strong, getting stronger, so growing physically. The spirituality is still there, though, because it speaks of him being filled with wisdom, there's the intellectual, and grace, the grace of God, so growing spiritually as well. We'll see that echoed in just a moment. But then what happens now? Freeze frame, pinpoint, 12-year-old Jesus, verse 41 to 43. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, which would be no big deal if they were still living in, in Bethlehem. That's just a couple miles. But it's, they're living in Nazareth, so this is a major journey, a pilgrimage for the pilgrimage feast. And they did it every year. These are good, obedient, observant Jews. And when he was 12 years old, so now we're, we see this on the timeline, the one spot where we have a specific story in the childhood or youth of Jesus. When he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother, again, we're separating those two out. This is not mom and dad. Joseph and his mother knew not of it. Now, before we think less of Mary and Joseph here, okay? By the way, this is the only place that they're referred to as his parents. And that seems to be a slip of the pen on Luke's part, because he knows they're not. Uh, so does Jesus. We'll see that in a second. But his, don't, don't chide his parents for this. I mean, think about the last time you went to a family reunion. And in some ways, this is a mobile family reunion happening every Passover as they're coming down. Any pilgrim that's going to be an observant Jew that wants to come down to Jerusalem, bring the whole family. 
And uh, often at a family reunion, it's a matter of, I mean, do you know where your kids are at every moment? Or is it just like, well, they're there with their cousins. I mean, so surely aunt so-and-so and uncle so-and-so are, are, are supervising. It's all good. And we keep doing our thing. So don't chide, don't chide Joseph and Mary here. Uh, by the way, if you've ever left a child at the rest stop uh, and didn't do the head count when you got back in the minivan, uh, if you left someone behind and, or you had two cars and both drivers thought the child was with the other, uh, it's not just Home Alone movie, right? It, there, sometimes we struggle with this. And I don't want to blame Mary and Joseph for anything. If there's blame here, blame Jesus. But don't call it blame. Because he's the only one that knows what he's doing here. When it says that the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, that sounds like a choice on his, his part. I'm staying here. And if there's one thing I love about Jesus, it's that he loves to tarry. Especially if it means he gets to continue engaging in his father's work. This is the same Jesus who in 3 Nephi 17, when he's among the Nephites and it's time to go, and he knows it and he tells them, and they, they can't even bring themselves to ask him. Because it seems like they're asking too much. But they looked upon him as if they would ask him to tarry. And Jesus doesn't have to be asked. So, oh, I love to tarry. I'll stay as long as you need. And he stays and performs some of the most beautiful miracles of his Nephite ministry in the tarrying time. Something similar is happening here. And Jesus just wants to stay. This is Passover. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We got to see the sacrifices at the temple. We got to cover our doorposts and lentils with the blood of the lamb. I'm seeing myself in all of these symbols and to be at the temple. I remember the first time we took our, our youngest son to see the San Diego temple and he just stood there, jaw dropped, and he joked and just said, okay, you guys can leave me. I'm done. Uh, go on on the rest of the vacation. I just want to stay here and, and watch. Can I tarry? And Jesus wants to tarry. But that can only last so long before mom and dad realize he's not with uncle so-and-so and aunt so-and-so. Oh, no. So what do they do? Verse 44 and 45. But they, supposing him to have been in the company... Off with the cousins or whomever. They went a day's journey and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. And I bet seeking could use a few adverbs like frantically or desperately, uh, fearfully, just what, what's happening to him? What have we done? To me, it's so interesting to think, and again, I don't want to blame Mary and Joseph here, there were just some assumptions on their part. And it was the assumptions that, that caused the problem here. Number one, assuming that he's with us, even when he isn't. Assuming that other people are take care, taking care of things when they weren't. And I worry sometimes about how much we assume in our parenting. I'm as guilty of this as anyone just figuring, I mean, my kids are growing up in our home. Of course, they're learning the gospel. They're getting it by association, by osmosis. How could they not? 
Of course, they're traveling with us. My wife and I are heading to the celestial kingdom. We are focused on our faith. And of course, our kids are, are in the company. But that's not always the case. And so often we need to be much more intentional and careful and individual in our, parent, in our parenting to make sure that every single child, are you with us? Are you headed in the same direction? Do you want to be going in this direction? Or is there somewhere else you'd rather be? Oh, if, oh you mean you'd rather tarry here? That's even better news. Because tarrying after a spiritual experience, that's a parent's dream come true. The child that doesn't want to come back from FSY because they're having a life-changing experience there. The child that doesn't want youth conference to end or actually wants to do another day of trek. <laughs> I don't know if I've met any of those. Uh, but they come home having loved the experience spiritually. The child who had to be dragged home from their mission kicking and screaming because they wanted to tarry a little longer there. Oh, to know that about your child, that's beautiful. But assuming that that's the case, when it might not be, assuming they're gaining a testimony just because they're being raised in a righteous home, now that's... The day may come where we look around and they're not here. They're not with us. And it's in those moments that we'll really start to rethink, how much assuming did I do? How much casual parenting am I guilty of when I needed to be far more intentional? That doesn't mean it's the end of it all. We can still turn back again. We can seek them, but it might take some searching because some distance has grown up in, the, in, in, in between. To me, it's actually interesting too, even if we're the one that's lost, we can also turn back again and seek him. I mean, think about it. Whenever you lose a child or anything or anyone or anything else, it's always, where did you see them last? And you try to retrace your steps. Well, think about it in terms of, of losing your grip on God, losing your testimony of Jesus, losing your faith in the church, whatever it might be. And, okay, where did I have it last? What was the last occasion when I really felt strongly about it? I knew I had my hand in the hand of God. What were the people? Who were the people? Where were the places? Best of all, what were the practices you were in, engaged in when you felt unshaken and unshakable? Then just turn back again and look for opportunities to get re-engaged in those kinds of efforts. You'll find him. Mary and Joseph are about to. Well, verse 30, 46 and 47, it came to pass that after three days, they found him. And imagine taking three days to read that verse. After three days, and then go search for three days. In fact, we don't even know, it might have been five. Because did those three days include the day of journeying northward? And then realizing it, and then a day, probably a shorter one, <laughs> they're booking it, to get back, and then a third day of searching around Jerusalem? Or was that just three days of searching in the city? Was it a day out, a day back, and then three days? Somewhere between three and five days, they've been searching frantically, desperately for Jesus. I feel particularly bad for Joseph since he's just, quote unquote, the father figure here. 
I mean, if I'm a babysitter and I lose the child, I am dead because, I mean, Mary can sort of blame herself as Jesus's literal mother, but God's going to be mad at me. I'm, I'm supposed to be providing, presiding, and protecting here. I didn't do a very good job. But notice how the verse continues. After three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors. Those would be doctors of the law. In our day, you could get a doctor of divinity. Okay? And so those doctors, those chief priests, those scribes, those who know the law of Moses, the Old Testament, inside and out, they're going to be at the temple too. What better place to be? And what's Jesus doing? both hearing them and asking them questions, which the JST corrects, and they were hearing him and asking him questions. There's a role reversal in the classroom, okay? And the student is teaching the teacher. That actually goes well with the next verse that says, and all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So that final verse, verse 47, does back up the Joseph Smith translation more than the King James Version. He's the one doing the teaching. And they're shocked at the answers that he gives. That being the case, though, can I honor both sides? Both what we get in the King James and what we get in the JST? Because aren't conversations and classes a mixture of both? And sometimes I'm asking my students questions, and sometimes they're asking me questions. And sometimes I'm answering them, and sometimes they're answering me. And that's a good dialogue. That's, that's learning on both parts from one another. And to picture a 12-year-old boy, I mean, not even time to have your bar mitzvah, right? And, and he is amazing everyone. They're astonished. We've seen a lot of marveling and wondering today. Well, here it's this climax in astonishment, probably among people that don't tend to get astonished very often. We're doctors of the law. We know this stuff better than anybody. We're here at the temple. We feel like we own the place. Probably some Sadducees there that do run the temple. Probably some Pharisees there who live the law as, as intensely as imaginable. And they're probably used to arguing and asking. And there's an old joke that where there are two Jews, there are three opinions. Uh, or where there are two rabbis, there are three opinions. I've heard the same thing said about college professors. Where there are two <laughs> professors, there are three opinions. They can't even agree with themselves, alone with each other. But to have a 12-year-old in the midst, picture someone who just graduated from primary. And last week, they were singing in the primary program. And this week... They're sitting with the ward council or the state council or they... Can I skip young men and young women and go straight to gospel doctrine and ends up having conversations with the teacher that blow everyone out of the water in the class? Like, who is this kid? And they're amazed by it. I also just, again, want to honor both questioners and answerers because both of those are spiritual gifts. I have been blessed by the Lord with a, a blessing of answers. And so often when someone asks me something spiritual, scriptural, I'll open my mouth and it'll be filled. It happened on my mission. It's happened since in so many just miraculous occasions. And sometimes my students will be like, oh, man, I wish I knew the answers like you do. And I'll always respond, whatever. I wish I knew the questions like you do. Because that's one of my weaknesses as a, te as a teacher. And my students will attest to it. Yeah, Brother Halverson doesn't, doesn't ask a lot of questions. I don't know if he knows how. 
uh, even when general authorities would visit in, in the mission field and they're like, okay, ask anything you want. I'd kind of sit there like, uh, I don't know. And it's not that I knew the answers. I didn't know the questions that would bring those answers forth. Tragically, that's one of my weaknesses in the temple. And yet I've gone to the temple sometimes with friends uh, that would have questions. And I'm like, that question is genius. I've never thought of that. Ooh, but if you, uh, Leviticus talks about this and there's this one verse in Deuteronomy. Oh, and then in Revelation when it said, Whoa, that's amazing. And they're like, what, the answer? I'm like, no, the question. Because the answer never would have come without the question to bring it forth. So to those who have the gift of questions, be grateful for it. Because those two gifts come in pairs. And when you find both of them together, look out. Amazing things will happen in the conversation or the classroom. It's like the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation of tongues. Put those together, you'll understand each other, believe me. Or the faith to heal and the faith to be healed. When those two find each other, miracles are on their way. So, Jesus asking questions and Jesus answering questions. Either way, that, there's inspiration at work. And it astonishes everyone. Well, <laughs> including mom and dad. Or mom and stepdad. In verse 48 and 49, when they saw him, finally, out of breath, relieved and angry and frustrated with themselves and with him all at the same time. You parents know what I'm talking about. When they saw him, they were amazed. <laughs> amazed that he survived three to five days without them. Amazed at what he was saying and doing there. Amazed that it never crossed the minds of these doctors of the law to ask him, Hey kid, where are your parents anyway? Do they know where you are? There's all kinds of opportunities for amazement here. But they were amazed, and his mother said to him, now catch here what she says, and I'm sure there's a strong tone of voice behind her words. She says, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Can you picture a mother in our day saying something along the lines of, We've been worried sick about you. Your dad and I, we've been, we've been tearing the place apart. Looking everywhere we could, how could you do this to us? And 12-year-old Jesus, completely unflustered, <laughs> responds, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Now, I absolutely love what Jesus says there. Because in a, in a, I'm sure it was in a gentle way. He is taking his mother's words and turning them back to her. In two instances. Notice the repetition of the words. First is the word sought. When she says, Thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. He responds, How is it that ye sought me? You said that you were out searching. Hmm, interesting word choice, mom. <laughs> what do you mean search? Why did you have to search at all? You called a search party? Why didn't you just come straight to the temple? Where else was I going to be? Two experiences I had. Uh, it was the first Easter I was going to celebrate with my wife. And she is such a fan of Elder Neil A. Maxwell. She knows all, her, all his stuff, probably better than he did. And it was the first Easter we were going to celebrate together. I wanted to get her something meaningful. Uh, but I was a poor college student. And so I thought, oh, genius. Uh, I will go, I'll make her a notebook with every Neil A. Maxwell talk I can find. 
She's going to be thrilled with it. Well, it was the it was general conference weekend in April, and uh, Saturday night I was at the Marriott Center at BYU listening to the priesthood session. When it ended at eight o'clock, I ran over to the BYU library to start making photocopies. This is before I mean, internet was pretty brand new at this time. And so I went to look at all the old issues of the Ensign and started making photocopies of every talk I could find. Well, I underestimated how many talks Elder Maxwell had given and underestimated how much time it would take to copy them. I figured, ah, half an hour, I'll be home back to our little apartment at 8.30. My wife will be none the wiser and I can surprise her in the next morning. Well, I'm in the middle of copying one more talk and I hear the music start to play saying, the library is about to clo close because it's almost midnight. And I'm like, <gasps> I'm so dead, so dead. And so I rushed back home, got, got there like 12, 15 in the morning and my wife was beside herself. I mean, talk about thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. It's like, Jared, I've been worried sick about you. And I was like, really? I'm only mm, four hours late. And she's like, where were you? I had no idea. I called the cops. I'm like, well, wait, what? you did? She's like, yeah, to report a missing person. I was like, it was four hours. She's like, yeah, but you didn't tell me where you were. I expected you right back after conference. And this was just a worried wife. Well, imagine Mary, a worried mother. In, in my case, I, I, I said, what did you tell the cops? And she just said, well, I told them you were missing. And they tried to calm me down and they said, well, how long has he been gone? And she was in tears, like three hours. And the cops probably had to bite their lip and keep from laughing where they're like, uh, I'm sure he's, he's, he's coming home. It's only been a few hours. At one point they even said, I'm sure he's just with a friend. And my wife said, he doesn't have any friends. I'm like, oh, thanks a lot, honey. Uh, but I, I, my one get out of jail free card was the gift behind my back. And so I didn't wait for Easter morning. Well, technically it was Easter morning. It was like 1220 now. Uh, and I gave her the book and said, this is why I'm late. This is what I was trying to give to you. And in an instant, it went from bitterness and fear to gratitude. And Elder Maxwell, I, I joke with people, Elder Maxwell almost cost me my marriage and then saved me my marriage in the same evening. <laughs> but to think of that concern, what, where would she have told the cops to look? Last place I was was at General Conference. Ooh, that's pretty good. I guess I had progressed because the other story I wanted to tell you came from a high school moment that wasn't quite so noble. In high school, I remember I had a curfew. It was midnight. I was supposed to be home. And one night I was out with my friends. We were toilet papering. And we were on a roll, literally. And it took longer. We didn't want to end. It was just a glorious moment. And I was like, ah, my parents will be fine. They don't wait up for me. They just expect me to come in when I get home before midnight and let them know I made it home safe and sound. And they'll be like, oh, groggy. Oh, okay, great. Good, go ahead. Thanks for checking in. And then they'll roll over. Well, I can get away with it this time because they'll sleep through and won't know. And I'll come home and I'll mm, half-heartedly return and report. I'll whisper through the, the master bedroom door, I'm home. And they won't hear me, but at least the next morning I can tell them, oh, that's weird. I told you I got home. You must have just forgotten or slept through it and hope they don't ask me what time it was. Well, sure enough, that was my plan. And I got home eventually after we ran out of toilet paper and I snuck into the house 
didn't make a sound, got into my bedroom after whispering, I'm home, thinking I'd gotten away with it. Unfortunately, there on my desk was a note from my father. And my dad wrote on it, Jared, it's midnight and you're not home. Love, dad. That was it. But it was exhibit A, evidence that I had missed curfew. I'm like, I'm dead. But then I thought, ooh, he knows I missed cur curfew, but he doesn't know how bad I missed curfew. <laughs> okay, maybe that's, maybe some wiggle room there. Well, no wiggle room. Because next to the first note was a second note. And it said, Jared, it's now 2 a.m. and you're still not here. I couldn't think of any good reason why you wouldn't be home. I went out to look for you, but couldn't find you, so I came back. Come see me in the morning so we can talk about failed family responsibility. Dad. It wasn't love dad this time. It, the love was gone. It was just dad. And failed family responsibility. I was like, oh, I am so dead in the morning. Better enjoy my last few moments of, of life. Well, we had a good conversation the next day, believe me. I actually even kept the note. I figured it'd be a souvenir for something someday. What's funny, though, and I've talked to my dad about this, but I've never gotten a solid answer. I'm dying to know where he went to look for me. Because that would say a lot about what he assumed I was doing. It was my version of what Jesus says here. How is it that ye sought me? Why would you have to go searching when you should have known I would be right here? When you came back to Jerusalem, why didn't you beeline straight for the temple? Because where else was I going to be? I doubt that my dad drove down to the Los Angeles temple to see if I was in the parking lot communing with the heavens. I doubt he went to the homeless shelter or the food bank to see if I was passing out midnight snacks. Again, I brought it up to him. He's never told me. Maybe it was a bluff from the beginning. Maybe he didn't go out and search for me after all, but wanted to make sure I felt very <laughs> condemned once we had our conversation about failed family responsibility. I don't know. Maybe he just drove the neighborhood wondering what he'd see. Maybe he went searching for freshly toilet papered trees and wondered if I, if I was still there performing my active service. I don't know. But like I said, where would you look? That says a lot about the person you're looking for. What will they be doing when they could be doing anything? And for you who are trying to seek Jesus, and that should describe all of us, we don't have to search hard. We know where he's to be found. And there are so many places where we can find him. I love that gentle rebuke on Jesus' part. The other one is, is fascinating, too, because he uses the word father. Remember what Mary had said? Remember Luke's slip? The, the parents left him. No, he wasn't with his parents. But then Mary's slip. Thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. Lowercase f. Joseph and I have been worried sick. What, what are you thinking of abandoning your mother and father? And Jesus' response? How is it that ye sought me? No, wist ye not that I must be about my father's, capital F this time, business. Again, that was, I think, a gentle way of Jesus saying to mother and to Joseph, Joseph, love you, not my dad. Mother, what do you mean my father's been looking for me? He knows exactly where I am. 
because I've been here with him in his holy house. I'm doing his business. Don't you remember now the end of that Joseph Smith translation in Matthew? That he was waiting to begin his ministry. And here you get a sense that he was chomping at the bit. I'm shocked that he could last another 18 years before he was able to actually begin it officially with the turning of a page and next week's study. Oh, my friends, we know where Jesus is to be found. He's always found with his Father. And if you find one, you find the other. He's, let's make it a trio and not just a duo. He's found wherever the Spirit is present because the Spirit is there to bear witness of him. What places can you go to access the Holy Ghost? What people can you associate with that invite that spirit? What practices can you engage in? What's your daily devotion like? Jesus knew where to go. He knew who he was and whose he was. And while he was subject to Joseph in terms of oh, learning the tricks of the trade, it was his capital F Father's work that he always wanted to be engaged in. I hope that describes us as well. Now Mary and Joseph's response to it all, verse 50, they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. Bummer, they didn't get it. They didn't understand what he just said. The gentle rebuke, the taking those two words and returning them to mother with interest, the clarification that you know exactly where you'll find me, Mom. The clarification that yeah, Joseph's awesome, but he's not my father. The clarification that I'm tired of waiting for the consolation of Israel. I just got to start. Now, again, don't blame Mary and Joseph for not getting it. How could they? This is so far above, beyond them, above their, over their head. We'll see Jesus say powerful things to the apostles throughout his ministry, and they don't get any of it either. Makes me wonder, do I get it? The things that the Lord has revealed to me or the things that are found in Scripture, I wonder so often, is some angel up there writing down my study and saying, and he understood not the same. Halverson, man, he still doesn't get it. But at least he's trying. Keep on growing up in God. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do, as well as Mary and Joseph. In verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and was subject unto them. You want to talk about true humility, real meekness. Try being led by your lessers. Try to be raised by parents that you should have been raising yourself. That wasn't me. I'm so grateful for my parents' influence. But to think of what Jesus is willing to do here, to go be subject unto them, even though, as we saw in the other verse, he didn't need anyone to teach him. Yeah, I don't need you to teach me, but maybe you need to teach me for your sake. I'll let you do that. Go ahead, Joseph. Go ahead, Mary. That is incredibly meek and humble of Jesus to do. Also, when it says that he went down with them, I mean, Nazareth is north of Jerusalem. So if you look at the map, we always assume he's going up. But no, Jerusalem was in the mountains. And so Jesus is going down to Nazareth, but in a better way, in a spiritual way, he's going down with his parents in a, in a way of continuing condescension. The Son of God has already come down to be with us on the earth, but to continue to 
come down with Mary and Joseph back to Nazareth when I was doing God's work in Jerusalem, back to my lowercase, quote-unquote, father, when I was about my father's business. Okay, waiting for consolation. I guess I can wait a little longer. And what will he do in the meantime? Actually, before that, what will Mary do in the meantime? Look at the last line of verse 51. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. I think we've come to expect that of Mary by now. We saw that earlier in this chapter, right after the shepherds left. And there she is, awestruck, amazed, astonished. Shepherds talking about angels and heavenly hosts. I thought I knew who this baby was when Gabriel came. I'm underestimating him. And then 12 years later, deja vu. What? The doctors... Uh, amazed by his uh, answer, his questions, his answers. That, who is this little boy? And how on earth am I going to be able to, able to raise him? Well, I'll just keep these sayings in my heart and just keep reminding him of who he is. And maybe he'll do the raising. In a way he does, verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. We saw a very similar verse just a few verses ago describing his first 12 years of growing up in God. Now we see the next 18, growing up in God as well. But notice the, the areas in which he's growing. They're so well balanced. I know you already know this. This is the foundation of the church's children and youth program to set goals in these various areas of your life to be well-rounded. And those areas are wisdom and stature and favor with God and favor with men. Wisdom, that's intellectual growth. How, what's your education? How much are you trying to learn and study and become mentally gifted? What about stature? The physical growth and developing in those kinds of talents and abilities and hands-on and so forth, to be physically fit, to keep the word of wisdom in the, its physical manifestations, to grow in wisdom and stature. Favor with God is the spiritual. We've got the intellectual, the physical, the spiritual comes in, my favor with God. I know he's trying to offer me his favor, his grace. Am I returning it? Am I growing grace to grace like Jesus will? We'll see that next week. And fourth, my favor with man. Yes, God cares about the social and not just the spiritual. He cares about the physical and not just the intellectual. He cares about it all. I've even I've challenged students to do this sometimes, where I'll have like a graph with the X, Y uh, lines, the axes, and there in the middle is the zero, zero dot. And then we'll label the four directions, kind of north, south, east, west, the lines growing out of it, and say, okay, label one favor with God and another favor with man. Label one growing in wisdom, another growing in stature. Label them, these are the areas of life. And then go out on the, the scale. Let's go, I don't know, one through five. How hard do you work at that? Or how naturally gifted are you there? How would you rank yourself? And as they plot the dots, and then I say, okay, now draw a curved line to connect them. We're trying to make a wheel here. And once they draw it, I ask, how smooth is your ride? 
as they realize, oh, yikes, this is going to be a bumpy trip because my wheel is so overinflated in the physical because that's all I've cared about. I'm a gym rat and, I, and I'm always working on, on you, know, you know, looking them in the mirror and flexing. I know there's more to the physical than just that. But that, these were teenagers I was talking to. Uh, and, and my intellectual, I barely have, barely move up the line at all. I, I don't care about it. Or others that are, oh, I'm so gifted socially, but I don't spend much time working on my spiritual side. In fact, I've even suggested, even if you were well-rounded, but the, the circle is pretty small, can you continue to increase in all four of those areas? Because if this is a bike, for example, the size of the wheel as you pedal, you can really build speed. But the shape of your wheel is going to be the smoothness of the ride. So that's the issue. What's the size and what's the shape of your wheel as you work on these four areas? And it's not just personal, it can be relational as well. Uh, my wife, for Christmas, just gave me one of the best gifts ever. And it was a suggestion of possible date nights we can have for the upcoming year, categorized by wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Let's have a physical date and we'll go on a hike. Let's have an intellectual date and we'll go to a museum. Let's have a spiritual date and we'll go to the temple. Let's have a social date and do something with another couple, which we never do because we're both introverts that have to pretend to be extroverted when we're out in public. <laughs> the, the interesting thing here is to grow in all of those areas is exactly what Jesus did and exactly what he's calling us to do as well. And perhaps it's even crossed your mind that there's a proving of contraries here. I mean, you knew I'd go there, right? I mean, how can I finish a lesson without proving some contrary somewhere along the way? And these paradoxes that somehow work better together than apart, even though they seem ill-fitted for one another, will take each pair. Growing in wisdom and stature. It's hard to do both. Again, think about my seminary kids, those teenagers, and the cliques that emerge in high school. Have you ever heard of the jocks versus the nerds? Well, the jocks are growing in stature, but not in wisdom. And the nerds are growing in wisdom, but not in stature. And who does God want us to be? Both. Develop both of them. And the second pair, favor with God and favor with man, well, there's the extroverts and the introverts, in a way. That sometimes introverts find it easier to connect with God because I can do that by myself. I can do that in the solitude of my room or up on a mountaintop somewhere. I can be alone. Whereas the extro extroverts, oh, growing in favor with man, they love me. I'm the life of the party. And I mean, if you think about mission companionships, it's always nice when an extrovert and an introvert are put together in a mission companionship. Because the extrovert can get into the door. They sometimes just don't know what to say once they get inside. Because like, what, study the gospel? You mean like by myself in a room, like with a book in front of me? Ugh, that's so boring. I mean, the introvert knows just what to do once they're inside, where it's like, oh, we finally get to teach. And all these things I've been learning on my own as I've been recharging the battery in my personal scripture study. I just don't know how to get into a door because I actually have to talk to someone. It scares me to death. Well, <laughs> prove the contraries. Get them together. you got a great companionship. But better yet, prove them within yourself. And if you're a natural extrovert who naturally finds favor with men, take time to be holy and just you and God. And vice versa, if you're more of an introvert but you are connected with heaven and find favor with God coming easily, 
push yourself out of your comfort zone and grow in favor with man. They need the spiritual gifts you have to offer. To me, there's such beauty in the example the Savior is setting through these lost years of his childhood and young adulthood. That's still a chance for us to come unto him and come to be like him. And not just for our sake, but for the sake of those around us that could benefit if we had a little more wisdom or could do a little more heavy lifting physically or if we had, were in better favor with God and could bless them through our strength and faith and testimony or that we just had, <laughs> we were open to them and had favor with them so they could trust us and we could give them the gifts that we've gained in other areas. It hit me during my seminary teaching years that the only reason, the real reason, that God had blessed me when I was a high school kid is so that I could bless children he cared about. When I was in high school, I did try unsuccessfully, of course, but did try to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. I was more of an extrovert back then. And I wanted to excel in sports, but I wanted to excel in the classroom. And I wanted to participate in music programs. And I wished I would have tried out for the school play, but I didn't have the guts to do it. And there were so many areas of life. I just wanted to try. And I wanted to be well-rounded. I'm more round now than I was then, but in the, in the wrong kind of way. <laughs> okay. Then, as a high school kid, I just had friends in every group. And I had friends that were jocks, and I had friends that were nerds, because I was a nerdy jock and a, a, a jockish nerd. Can you say that? I don't know. Uh, I loved church and loved seminary, but also loved hanging out with my friends, even after curfew sometimes. Sorry, Dad. And, and I found favor. But what hit me was one day, 10 years later, I was teaching seminary and driving home after an amazing day where I felt like I connected with my students so powerfully and together we connected with God in an amazing way. And I just was on fire, kind of floating my way back home driving. And I remember praying in the car and just thanking Heavenly Father for the experience of the day. I loved teaching teenagers and just thanking Him for it. And all of a sudden I found Him like commandeering the prayer. And as Third Nephi says, letting me know what I should have been praying about. And I found myself thanking him for my academic success in high school so that I could relate to the smartest kids in my classroom and try to inspire them to turn that intelligence to consecration. I found myself thanking God for helping me in sports and allowing me to excel on the football field or on the track. Not so much in basketball. I couldn't hit, the, couldn't hit a free throw to save my life. My friends still remember some of those air balls. <laughs> but in other sports, the Lord blessed me. And I realized the reason why was so I could relate to this, the athletes in my class and help them get excited about the gospel. I can still think of a few big buff football players that came into seminary thinking they were too cool for the gospel and ended up excelling spiritually as much as they did, excelling in the gospel as much as they did on the gridiron. Uh, some friends I'm still close to that I taught years ago and went on for collegiate football glory 
but even better, <laughs> spiritual glory in the mission field and beyond. I remember praying and thanking Heavenly Father for letting me connect with the musicians and the theater kids and the quiet ones and the loud ones. And I just felt like, it felt like I was still in high school. And I still had friends in every area. These were now just friends younger than I was, students of mine. And in the midst of that prayer, I just found myself thanking Heavenly Father for my high school experience. And best of all, finally seeing my high school experience the way God intended it all along. And it was as if the Spirit whispered to me, of course I blessed you in high school. And it had nothing to do with you and your high school experience. I blessed you in high school because I knew you would be in high school for a long, long time. And so I was, and so I have been. And I pray I can still connect with youth. I can still connect with youth and people of other ages as I'm catching up with other ages myself. As together we try to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So we have something to consecrate to one another who are engaged in the same process of growing up in God. My friends, I, I love the gospel. I love the scriptures. I love the gospels of Jesus Christ and the, what we've studied today in Matthew and Luke. I love Christmas as it's rooted in the nativities of Matthew and Luke. What I love about this study of them is that every person you meet, every all the cast of characters in our nativity play teach us a lesson on coming unto Christ. Every single one of them. The star teaches that lesson as it came and alerted people generally first and then specifically second. Let them know that there are powerful things going on. And once the attention was, got, was, was caught, then they were brought to Bethlehem. This star is coming unto Christ and bringing other comers with it. To think of the angels who came to the shepherds in shepherd's field. And they came rejoicing to think about those shepherds themselves who then came to find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in the manger. And those shepherds came wondering and worshiping. To think of the wise men who came because they knew who this holy child was and they brought the gifts to prove it. To think of Joseph coming and within his daunting stewardship, being worthy of the revelation required to preside, provide, and protect a holy family. To think of Mary coming unto Christ in all her humility, the humble handmaid of the Lord, but willing to go wherever that mission took her. To think of Simeon and Anna coming in the very moment they needed to be there, to have fulfilled every promise that God had made to them. Are you waiting for the consolation of Israel too? Then come. You know where to find them. There's no searching needed. Just come. One of my favorite Christmas carols extends that invitation over and over and over again.
And who is he inviting? The faithful. But then again, he's inviting the faithless too. The unshaken as well as the shaken that want to be steadied spiritually. Just come. Oh, come, all ye faithful. Come and adore him. This is Christ the Lord that we're coming to. So come. Come boldly. Come humbly. Come with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Come with nothing in hand but a testimony to share with others once you've come and found the Savior. I know he's worth coming to. And best of all, I know he's coming himself. When he comes, I pray that we will be ready to follow him, as we'll do next week, once we turn a page and begin following him into his mortal ministry. It's still a matter of accepting his invitation to come unto me.